Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about the media and digital production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. Today, we're going to talk about the basics of green screen. I'm going to talk a little, uh, probably less about the actual software and more about how to understand what you're doing with green screen and really how to shoot it, which is the most important part. So we'll talk a bit about that in the second hour and be answering your questions. So if you've got questions for the second hour or the first hour, you can throw those in right now. Uh, Remember that you can also vote on the questions. You as the listeners or viewers are the you're the producers. You are are deciding not only what we talk about, but when we talk about it. So voting will help kind of sort that order out. And a lot more people are voting now. We're seeing <laughs> we're seeing a lot of more movement than we have in the past. But definitely ask those questions and uh, and vote on the questions. All right, let's go ahead and jump into those questions, Bill. What do we have? First one from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. This morning he says, "Morning, guys. Looking to purchase headset comm system for a crew of twelve. What are the solid mid-tier options available? The crew has outgrown the budget options, but not ready to spend Clearcom money." Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Clearcom money is yeah the most popular one that we see in most events are Clearcom's FreeSpeak Two. Um, those are the ones that we see. That's the one that we use for almost everything that we do, and we rent them. We don't own them. Um, I, I I used to own two two pair. <laughs> two, two kits of those, um, but but oh, and I know uh, rents them. the The next step down is really the Hollylands. I think the Hollylands are probably the Hollyland uh, makes a makes a set of them that we just used. It's single channel, so you're not going to have all the PLs that you're used to uh, potentially having or any kind of directs. But it, it's a you know the Hollyland is one one place to look uh, for those belt packs. And I have to admit that I haven't used um, much in between. There's been basically people on phones with Unity or Clearcom's uh, Agent IC or Hollyland, or then you go into FreeSpeak. And so I don't know. I know that uh, Telos uh, is make has it has one that's kind of in between a lot of those things, but we haven't tested it yet. We are hoping to get those folks on the show to talk more about it. All right, let's go to the next question. Laura Seal, Greensboro, North Carolina, says, "Doing some lightweight video production in London next week. Coming from the U.S., what will I wish I had brought, bought, brought, or thought of? Brought or thought of? Go ahead, Jeffrey." Well, the biggest thing is plugs, uh, plug converters, and uh, and being able to, well, and depending on what you're bringing. Uh, so I, I usually bring whole all my production with me, as in all my own gear. Uh, so for me, it's uh, I. You need to make sure that every single piece of equipment will actually do. Was it two twenty? Uh, at even even with those little plugs, if you put in the wrong thing, you could blow up whatever device you have a lot of cameras a lot of devices that that's that's not a problem and sometimes you have to switch it from 115 to 220 uh so make sure that you do that uh the other thing is if you're bringing any wireless remember that they really tie down the wireless system there like for instance if you had wireless on the street and let's say you even went and got the proper license for that street if you cross the street you're out of that range of that license if you're doing something in the O2 center, you just go to the RF person and you tell them that that's what that's what you're using, and uh, what frequencies you can use from that. And then finally, uh, Pelican case. Make sure all the wheels. If you're if you're using any type of rolling cases, make sure all the wheels are good because they're just going to bounce all over the place. Especially if you use the tubes over uh, cabs, because it's a lot easier to get from one point to another via the tubes rather than if you're in London itself rather than taking a cab or an Uber. Go ahead, Bill. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jeffrey was right. Maine's power, what they call it over in that part of the world. Uh, it, adapting that is critically important. The other thing I always thought about is just pocket cash. Uh, getting things changed into euros and things like that ahead of time. Talk to your bank and make sure that when you arrive, you have stuff for tips and the regular little things that you normally do. So that's all. Yeah, one thing to remember is that you can, uh, most of our cables, definitely everything about plugs. One of the things I, I, I made the mistake of a long time ago was that I, I would have converters for every one of my plugs um, that I would take, whether I was in in Europe or I was in in the UK or in New Zealand or whatever it was. Would take I would take these converters and I would have these converter boxes all the time. At some point, I realized that there was nothing in that converter other than converting the pins, and almost all of my equipment was using a C13 or a figure eight uh, power. Then I learned to go to hardware stores <laughs> in the country that I landed in. I just buy those cables. And so, so anyway, so what I do is I just buy the C13 cables with the proper ends and I get, I, I buy at the, and, and you only have to do this a couple of times before you have a whole box of them at, at the office. And so, so you buy them all and then you take them with you. And so then it, you don't have that little converter box that can get kicked out. Um, it is just a regular C13 cable. That's the three prong that you see in almost every major piece of equipment that you have or a figure eight and, or, a, or a clover leaf or there's a bunch of different ones and all of them are available in the local hardware store. Um, so, so, the, so I would definitely go down that path. Then you can get a surge protector or whatever, a, um, you, know, a you know, get a bunch of plugs <laughs> and plug them all in. But now it's a much more stable solution than having lots of little uh, plug converters. They're not, they're not worth it if you can, once you realize that every hardware store everywhere in the world will have those cables. Well, I mean, not everyone, but most of them will. Um, so, so anyway, it's just it just makes the whole thing a lot more stable. Um, you cannot uh, use your um, the one thing you can't use is your UPSs. Your UPSs will not do two different voltages because of the way that they manage power. So, you do need to get something local if you want a UPS. Um, definitely look at getting the London Pass, which is the you know the London you know the the little you know Metro Pass or whatever, because as as uh, Jeffrey said it's a lot easier to get around um, with Metro, but you don't want to try to keep on using money or do anything else. You just get the pass, put a bunch of money on it, and then you can move around really, really easily. But those would be the things that I would think of. And then, of course, decimators. <laughs> Always take a couple decimators, especially when you're somewhere else where you might have to convert that. All right, let's go to the next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are the useful features and limitations of the native YouTube video ed editor? And at what point do you need to use DaVinci Resolve, Adobe Premiere, or Final Cut? I'll go ahead, Jeffrey. YouTube editor is perfect for little problems. You just posted up a video, and then let's say you said one thing, and you just, <clears throat> excuse me, you want to cut it out. Then, uh, then you cut that out, or maybe uh, maybe you misspelled the lower third, so you want to blur that out uh, without having to re-upload the whole video. It's just it's just a question of whether you can ha handle that little cut or uh, or need to do something a little bit bigger. You use DaVinci Resolve, you use uh, Adobe, you do use Final Cut. If you've got if you want to actually put on lower thirds, if you want to put on graphics, if you want to make camera switches or anything like that. Yeah, I would say the, the biggest advantage of the YouTube editor is that you don't change your URL. So you can do whatever surgery that it's it's able to do for you without having to change the URL. Um, the uh, the biggest advantage of everything else is you get a lot more control. <laughs> so, so if you're willing to give up the URL and whatever the view counts were and everything else, you're better off 
taking it down and editing it and putting it back up again. But if you're, but if you want to hang on to that URL, and that's also important if you did went out in social media and posted that link somewhere. So you've got it on Twitter, you have press put it out, everything else. What you don't want to do is create a dead link. And so, so that's one of the things people stay pretty attached to and using that editor to, to avoid that. Uh, next question. John Foles, Ceiling Scrobe, Pennsylvania, says CapCut was mentioned yesterday as an easy way to use an online editor for simple projects. Since it's owned by ByteDance, a.k.a. TikTok, is it safe to use? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Um, it's looking pretty safe to use. I've actually called up the web version, and uh, and I've just been uh, trying putting together one of my videos that uh, that I've been working on. For tests, uh, you can do different types of TikToks. You can bring in all the little graphics and things like that, and uh, and then get that up and running. There is looks like there is some copyright uh, vi uh, st stock on there, so you can use your own stock. You can use whatever they have for the copyright. Uh, like I said, I use the web version. Uh, they might, if you're using like an iOS app or something like that, they might ask for all your photo access. You just have to say, uh, if you don't want them to use everything, you just have to say uh, only uh, only the photos and videos that I want to use from. I, I found it wouldn't open without getting access to all the photos. Like it just, it asked for that and then didn't give me any access without having really? given access to the photos. Didn't happen yeah, with me. All kinds of bad. Like I would, I took it. I took it completely off my phone immediately. <laughs> like I was like, and I almost stopped using TikTok. I haven't used stopped using TikTok yet. I, I'm I'm trying to enjoy its its uh, its last days on our phone. So so anyway, so I, I'm trying to enjoy those moments uh, before it's gone. I think that TikTok will. I, I think TikTok is about a eighty percent chance. I wouldn't say a hundred percent chance. About eighty percent chance that it won't make the end end of the year. Um, you know, so we'll especially as things continue to get tighter with the United States and China. I think that they'll probably turn it off. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. He says, Alex, you've always told us that not overloading people beyond 60 to 75% is being important for a successful show. Can you elaborate on that? You know, it, one of the things that a lot of happens a lot is people will see people sitting around and not doing something at that moment in a live show and think, oh, I hired too many people. <laughs> like I should have hired less people so that everybody's working the whole time. And the, the thing is, is that that's not how you make a good show. That's how you save a lot of money. But over, over, you know, having everybody run at a really high, you know, um, a high utilization rate means that if anything goes wrong, you can't adjust. And when you get to a show where the, and it depends on the show, but when the show gets to a point where the most expensive part of the show is failure. So you're working for a brand, you're working for someone else, you're working on something that matters. Um, you need to have overhead. You need to have the ability for people to handle problems. You need more time. You need more people. You need more equipment so that you have, so that when something changes, when something doesn't work, when you're having trouble with something, you have the overhead to adjust for that. Uh, if you're running everybody at 100% and then some, just on the normal show and then something goes wrong, you're now, you know, you don't have anywhere to go. You know, and so, and so, and that's how you end up with failures in your live event. So, you know, I try to keep everything between 40 and 60%, you know, and uh, I don't succeed every time, but when I design this, when I design the kit or design the, and, and, and requisition the crew, I'm thinking, how do, how is everybody about at about 40 to 60% of what they're doing? How's the equipment at about 40 to 60% of what it could do? How is the, you know, all of those things are in that range. Um, so that you can, if something goes wrong, you have plenty of overhead or something changes or you want to be creative and, and, and innovate a little bit. 
uh, how do we stay inside of that safe zone so that it, it all works out? Um, and, it, and I have to admit, it's not how I always approach things. I, pro- I start approaching it that way because it turns out that Wirecast doesn't really work very well over 60%. And so I, I started <laughs> saying, well, we can't run anything over 60%. And then I started realizing that was a pretty good idea for everything. <laughs> so that, that was probably 15 years ago. But I was like, yeah, it's not a bad idea to keep everything running a little bit below its uh, capacity so that we have, we have the ability to adjust. Next question. Mike Edwards, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm sorry, Andy Kokendorfer, Vieira, Florida, says, I understand that YouTube will soon accept AV1 streams. Has anyone tested this yet? Go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. YouTube has accepted AV1 for almost a year now. You can can upload anything that you want. You just uh, have to encode it. What it'll do is it will re-encode not only uh, with the AV1, but also with uh, standards. So if you, uh, if, uh, and of course all the resolutions, so you can uh, watch it wherever you're watching it from. And you can actually change the settings right now inside your YouTube to only accept AV1 uh, over uh, over uh, uh, H.264. So that's, you do it right now. OBS uh, beta 29.1 should support uh, uh, AV1 live streaming. So that's uh, it should be coming out today. Uh, it's OBS uh, 29.1 beta. Uh, and so that's a place where you can start to test live ingestion of AV1. That's one that you're looking for. I don't know if it's out today or sometime in the next couple of days, but it should be coming out there. Um, it's not going to do the HDR stuff yet, but, uh, but it's, it's a good place for you to start testing it. Uh, none of us have tested it until that came out. <laughs> so, so, so that's that's what we're working on right now. All right, next question. Mike Edwards, Brooklyn, New York. Back again. Morning, guys. Wanted to wait for audio day, but what are your thoughts on Chompy, C-H-O-M-P-I, the tape loop thing? That's cool. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I looked at the video on it, and it's uh, it's kind of like a sample synthesizer, a sampling synthesizer, but that's one my criticism of it. Uh, is that it only does sampling, and it, it's you know a synthesizer that's uh, designed by Fisher Price is what it looks like, but it's priced like it's uh, made by Apple, so uh, yeah, that's the back of it. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's designed for kids to use, but it's going to be like six hundred dollars. Is it uh, five hundred? Where's the price? I don't see four ninety nine during the. Uh, 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 Kickstarter campaign, and then I, I don't think the Kickstarter has launched. Four ninety nine. Hold on, I, I saw prices on it. Uh, okay, there you go. And it was four ninety nine and five ninety nine. So basically, I and the the other thing is it has very few controls. There's other choices that are a lot cheaper. Here's one that's uh, been out for a long time: Korg Vocalist Sampler uh, and Digital Sequencer. That's hundred nine bucks from available now. It does very similar thing. It's got a little keyboard. And it does uh, vocal samples and uh, applies those samples with uh, chromatic, you know, adjustment and sample rate to give you tone, you know, uh, balanced tones that are on the musical scale. So, yeah, I think that the one thing I will say is that while a lot of things may do those things, I think a lot of people underestimate the value of interface. The the interf- I think that the interface here is much more pleasing and and much more better than than the other ones that do many of the same things. It's like they got all the buttons and they have all the features. It's just that it's not as uh, it's not as I think what 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 I feel like they're doing with Chompy is they're really um, focused on that user experience, exactly how everything feels and exactly how it works. And I think that as we get into an undifferentiated market, I think that that's starting to make a big difference. Is you can charge more 
by having just the components. I, I think the reason it's so expensive is because the components are better. You know, they're just a little higher resolution. They feel a little better as you work on them. And some people are willing to pay for that. And some people are. <laughs> so, so good, Jeffrey. So basically, the da- it's based on what's called the Daisy Seed, which is an embedded platform uh, that you can get. And it's easily programmable. You can program it in many different languages. Uh, so the, the big thing that I'm seeing about this is the construction, whereas Courtney showed a different, the Korg. The Korg has a lot of uh, pressure keys, whereas this has actual mechanical keys. So a good press on there. It really depends on how those dials and those keys are set up and what uh, what brands that they're using uh, for this, uh, if this is going to be a, a solid instrument to be playing. The other thing uh, I'm wondering, I don't, I didn't see anything about internal battery or anything like that. So how portable is this in playing? And uh, those are the, those are the questions that I'd have to get. I'm hoping it's going to be at NAMM so I can test it out. And if that happens, then I'll let you guys know. And technically it's a magical tape music instrument. We should make sure we we annotate that correctly. Uh, Next question. Next question comes from Jonas Dattel in Stuttgart, Germany. How many people on the panel have been asked by their clients to build studios in their office or maybe even maybe even remote controllable? Go, Jason. Uh, yeah, I've done quite a few, many of which were in the last couple of years over the course of COVID. I think the first one I did was in Tribeca in, in 08 or, or 2009, maybe. And uh, that was just podcast. But yeah, AV Studios, absolutely. You got Bill. One of my largest clients built a huge, uh, they, they moved into giant new offices and they built a huge video production studio, high ceilings, grid, all this stuff. But they were about 90% done with it before the pandemic hit. And the person who spearheaded and bought really good equipment and was all set to finish it up left the company. And so it has been sitting there gathering dust. And they asked me to come in and analyze what they had, whether it was still worthwhile, what they could do with it. And so I spent about a week and a half kind of poking around. They had bought really good stuff, but without that person guiding it, it is probably still sitting there collecting dust. And I kept getting this feeling of things have changed. They probably could have done something different with this space rather than a monolithic production studio. You know, something where they had uh, cubicles for people to go in and do webcasts or something like that or, or more communication. It just felt to me as if that mode, what they built for three years ago, wasn't as relevant going forward as it was in the past. And it caused me to kind of rethink, what does it need to look like? What you're talking about, I think, Jonas, is probably more sensible, small insert kind of places rather than the traditional studio of the past. That was an interesting thought exercise for me. Go ahead, Chris. Through the course of COVID, doing you know uh, remote records, which I think uh, either that or live feeds, like Jonas is probably referring to, I have on several occasions, just because you know office hours and being friends with Alex Lindsay, the most expensive friend on the planet, uh, had on multiple occasions people go, ah, your picture looks so good. How do you do that? And I've on many occasions said, here's my number. Please call me. I will help you. I'll do whatever you want. As many times as I've given out contact information to you know, people that were on calls and offered to help them free of charge, I've never had anybody take me up on it. Not even once. It's It's... It's, you know, out of sight, out of mind. I don't need to think about that now. Yeah, I, I uh, 
So I've built a lot of studios for our our partners. <laughs> so so uh, uh, mostly most of most of the studios I built are probably for Fortune ten, um, a couple for Fortune one hundred, uh, and then a, a variety of other groups. So we probably built almost twenty of them now. Um, you know, over the last de- decade, and uh, what what happens is is that there are there are a couple of things that have to work for the. I think that by the way, I'm just going to say this. I'm not going to ab- ab- elaborate. But the future is is a studio as a service, so, so just we'll just put that out there. You know, I'm gonna, a, a company's going to pay a certain amount of money per month, and they're just going to get a staff and a studio and a thing, and they don't have to think about it. They don't have to put it on their. You don't have to. You know, all those things. But the reason that you build a studio is because you want to use it all the time. If you're not going to use it all the time, it's not worth building. As Bill said, if you're not going to keep it running, you, it needs to be used daily. Really, it has to be used at least about once a week. If it's not used once a week, it will never amortize. So, so you have to think about how you're going to do it. Now, most of the companies that we've built studios for have been using it every day. You know, so they use it every day. Um, we've built some studios that are so totally self-run. So we literally build them so that you can walk in and there is a button to start streaming. You just push the button and it starts to stream. You push and then the camera stuff, we basically etched in metal. So we have like controllers that are etched in metal with a little, there's a computer button and a person button and a two person button. Then you just push the buttons and it is controlling an ATEM. And so, uh, in fact, it was the very early days of, um, of uh, Scarhoy, we had them building these things, and then anyway, long story. Uh, so, um, but anyway, so you we would use the Scarhoy platform, but we'd build a custom interface for it, so that it was really, really easy for them for them, and they'd use it a couple times a day. You know that that, that client um, because their developers could come in and do oddly enough office hours. <laughs> so, so they would come in and do an office hours about how to talk, how to do something or whatever, but they don't have to know anything about how to stream. And that was really powerful for them. Um, the other studios have been fully run studios. They've got a control room, they've got other things. And a lot of times, to Bill's point, we would staff them. <laughs> so we would, we would build the studio. And what's different about when you build the studio and staff it is that you build it for running it. Uh, when, you, when you hire an integrator to do this, not all the time, but many integrators will build it because that's the easiest way to integrate it. And it's also, they have relationships and they have profit margins and they have, and there's some good integrators that don't do this, but a lot, 90% of them do. And they build studios that are very hard to run. You know, they're, they're very, they're, they're not, and so we, we would build the studios because we have to run them. So we would build the studio that was just what we needed to make it actually go. And then we would then we would staff it, and it was great. It was a good good business model for us. <laughs> so so we you know we ran a couple studios that way, um, and and so uh, that makes it a lot easier to make that work. I think that the future is enga- engaging the global audience requires video, and I think that you're going to end up whether it's podcasts, audio podcasts, or video, you're going to see every headquarters is going to have a studio. And every floor eventually is going to have an insert studio that people can, an insert that people can go into to have these conversations um, because not doing that is completely nuts. You know, like it is not, you know, being able to have people be able to have the company being able to generate the conversations. And for a lot of these companies, the studios we built, 80% of it was for internal communication. It wasn't for external. Every once in a while it would go to the outside, but it was all these, they, they would have at least one company at least once a week was an all hands for a different division within the company. These are billion dollar company. I mean, a fifty billion dollar company, but it's but keeping everybody going the same direction and being able to have these these all hands all the time 
for 3,000 here and 8,000 there all over the world is super powerful. Um, you know, th- th- people talk about how do you keep everybody going when they're not coming to the office? Well, the, a lot of these companies are global. They need to keep everybody going and no one's ever going to make it to that office. And so, so the, it is super important to build these studios um, just for internal communication. Then external communication, the problem is most of the time that what they want to do is talk about their own business. But what they really should be doing is A, answering questions from their users, which is like an office hours. And B, they, they need to be um, uh, talking about their industry. Like Bloomberg, you know, Bloomberg, uh, uh, the television network was there to support the Bloomberg uh, terminal. The Bloomberg terminal you pay, I don't know, it's like $1,500 a, uh, a month, I think, to have that terminal. The TV network that we now see as public was just to support people who had the terminal <laughs> to promote it. And so the thing is, is that that's what companies should be thinking. Bloomberg had it, had it right. Most companies don't, don't understand that model. Go ahead, Chris. You know, I think what we're talking about is three different things. You're talking about a, you know, a multicam studio, possibly an insert mm-hmm. studio. I don't know who is responsible for coining the term, but I remember it from the very early 90s. It may have been new tech, but we used to use the term desktop video. When when I wasn't in a big production suite and I could edit my videos at my desktop, I don't know if anybody's used this term yet, but we need to coin the term desktop studio. Now, yeah. all the Twitch Good. kids and all the streamers with their little lights and their LED, you know, or nerds like us, yeah. we've been doing it for a long time, but we need to we need to mainstream that. We, meet, we mm-hmm. need to mainstream the idea of you should at your desk, in your cubicle, in your office, maybe a corner of your office, maybe your actual seat. There should be a couple of buttons, boom, desktop studio. And I don't know, I'm going to start Googling. I don't know if anybody's actually you know, popularized that, but it needs to be mainstreamed so that when people... Uh, execs or you know directors or managers in in businesses when they start thinking about this it needs to be like oh desktop studio do it do i need to have that what is yeah. that term what does that mean well and the the thing is is that you know we went to open office that we've already talked about a thousand times it was a complete disaster it was like probably the worst architectural idea in the last century and um and so uh people that's why people don't want to come back to the office if you actually gave them to what chris is talking about which is a cubicle that was big enough that that they look good they sound good it's completely enclosed a lot of people would probably come back to the office um and and so the thing is is that you would they have all the creature comforts of an office plus isolation but here's the interesting thing is it would actually be easier for them to meet if everybody in facebook had their own little cubicle that was closed it would actually be easier for them to meet with each other over video than it would be to find conference. If you've ever worked in any of those companies, um, I've worked in most of them, <laughs> the the amount of stress that you go through trying to get a hold of a conference room is insane. Like it is like you, have, and then you have to finish right on time because there's somebody else coming in and, and there's all this, the conference rooms are this thing that is just, it drives the whole company. And, and every conference room is full. Every conference, because they're all trying to find some place to talk that isn't in the open office and they could eat, you know, and, and so a lot. And then when they integrate someone coming in from their cubicle, that cubicle is blending tons of inf- uh, stuff into the conference room and you can't hear anybody in the conference room very well because it's all echoey. So it, it, it doesn't work if you just built it around, hey, we're going to build everybody around a virtual experience and you can talk to people. If you want to go to a conference room, you can. And everybody, you know, over a certain age will probably want to do that. But there'll be a whole lot of people that are like, I just want to 
set up a meeting in Zoom and all be, you know, we'll all be in those offices. And I think that's going to also be something that we should look at. But I think that, we're, and then, then if you have a person at home, a person in the office, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But it gets back to what Chris, even at home, then you want a studio like something like what we have here, depending does, on how, how much money studio. you have. Yeah. You know, yeah, Alex, quickly, as, a, as an editor, every place I've ever worked, I always have my own office, the edit suite. You know, yeah. I, I, and I've had some great edit suites. I, I worked in a place once where out my window was a beautiful shot of yeah. the, the, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. I was on the Presidio. Uh, when I go into areas, cubicle farms and stuff, I don't know how people do it. Like the, I, I can do it. I can do it for a couple numbers. days. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it for a couple hours. Yeah, I I've done it for. Crazy. A, I do it for like I've done it for like three weeks stints, and, and by the end, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I gotta go. All right, uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Up next is Zoom Team Chat relevant for office hours alongside Discord and Mucana? I think we're full. I don't need any more any more places to interact. <laughs> next question. Craig McFarlane, up next from Boston, Massachusetts. Has anyone played with StreamYard's new customizable layout feature? Go ahead, Craig. Uh, so I'm actually just curious myself. I started playing around with it. It's basically a feature that allows you to take their, whatever they had normally have, six, seven uh, standard layouts as far as speakers and media, and it allows you to have customizable, like here's the gallery of the panel, and I want to have two side-by-side -side main speakers or three, and completely customizable, but, it, but it's dynamic areas. So it looks really interesting. Uh, uh, it's good. To this group. That's been a that's been a thing that's been really missing from Streamyard. So I think that it's a that they're they're focused on the right things <laughs> you know, to to make it to to make it a lot better. The, that definitely takes it from being just a, we're turning it on to a show. So I haven't gotten to play with it yet, but it does look like a, a lot of great new features. Um, next next question. Douglas Carmichael up next again with I've heard a lot of playback. I've heard of playback engineer as a position in large concerts. Is that just a synonym for a digital audio workstation operator? I'll go ahead, Courtney. No, uh, it's typically <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> typically, you know, most of these big uh, uh, touring bands these days travel with the LED walls for their backdrops and for uh, lighting. The lighting console, the LED walls, the, all the images that appear in sync with those songs that they're playing are running off of uh, video playback uh, servers. And they have time code, which is either generating, uh, and that's playing back a click track in the drummer's ears, or perhaps even uh, vocal tracks or background tracks that they use to supplement the band if they can't travel with a full symphony orchestra, for example. You know, they don't want to pay those uh, musicians, uh, that many musicians, to get the sound that they may have on their album. So they'll play a, a background track that's in sync with the video track, that's in sync with the lighting console, and it all travels off a time code. And usually uh, the playback engineer is the person that controls the playback of those tracks. And usually it's video tracks that have time code on it that drive, send the time code to the audio console who plays back, uh, you know, who who handles the transitions for the lighting on certain uh, time code cues. So that's what I think it is they're referring to. Of course, you know, somebody could misuse the term playback engineer for <laughs> digital audio workstation operator. Go ahead, Jason. Uh, Courtney took the first part, and I've got nothing to add to that, so I'll, I'll just insert what I think a DAW operator does at a live event. 
uh, my understanding is that they are they are in charge of tweaking the various sound effects. If you've got a synth going through an array of processors, if you've got a guitar that you need to you know mix very specifically in a way that you know is unique to the space, that was my understanding of of, of a DAW operator. So you know the difference between those two is vast. Yeah, and, and the playback could be audio, could be video. So it could be audio, just the audio cues, because a lot of times it can't, it, it can be time code, but it can also just be cued against something. You have to arm it to do it. That way that people can talk between the songs you know, and do what they need to do. So you have to have someone there focused on when does that, when does that actually start? And a lot of times they're driving the song because they're the ones that start the song. Um, you know, and it may not be all of it. It may be just a, a, a one piece that kind of gets everybody going. And it could be just the time. It could literally be the click track. Um, in other cases, when we're doing it in events, playback operator could be someone who's managing watch out uh, or not watch out. Yeah, watch out. We, we used to call it lookout. <laughs> we had a lot of trouble with it. Um, Q, Q Lab, Softron, Playback Pro. Um, these are folks that are all there to play out stuff out on cue. Sometimes that's tied to time code and sometimes that's done manually or sometimes it's a bit of both. So those are, those are two different ways that we hear playback being used. Next question. Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida is up with this one at the Game Developers Conference, GDC 2023. Epic announced an upcoming unified 3D digital mar marketplace for creators called Fab. This is uh, one announcement to note in their state of the Unreal stream. By the way, the live stream was seven and a half hours long. Thoughts? Was this useful? Go ahead, Jeffrey. It looks pretty good, but we had, I can't, we can't get into it just yet to see what, uh, what they're going to do. And, and of course, it's all going to be community uh, based. So if, uh, if nobody's putting in their digital assets to sell, kind of remember, this is not going to be, there's probably not going to be any free content in there, maybe a couple things. But uh, uh, if you're, yeah, if there, if uh, people don't put stuff in to sell, then uh, this is not, not going to be a great place to go. So we'll see what happens. And there's Unreal has a, has a marketplace already, so it's it's interesting to see how they're going to take the marketplace that's the Unreal marketplace that's already out there, which does have a lot of free stuff and does have a lot of things that you can get that you can download. And so it's it's interesting to see where they go with this. You can see why they're fighting Apple because what they don't want to do is give up thirty percent of all the revenue from that marketplace if people are buying digital assets inside of that system. So uh, we'll see how that how that works um, and what happens as the App Store opens up in Europe. We don't know if it's going to open up globally. I have a feeling that Apple's going to create a fork <laughs> you know, that, that only works in Europe, um, you know, for that process. Uh, and so, uh, but I think that it, it, you know, we'll see how that goes, but I think that's going to be interesting. I do think that digital assets are going to be a huge future for a lot of people as, as the different platforms start to pick up speed. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more of that as it relates to um, WWDC. Next question. Jonas Doddle has a question from, uh, for those of you who are into the initials of this, here it goes. Alex, have you tested the HDR HLS from OBS to YouTube? I haven't. I, I here's a Mac. Um, and I don't find that OBS, I don't consider OBS stable on the Mac. <laughs> so I haven't, haven't used it. Um, I am looking at downloading because of some of the AV1 stuff. Um, I am, uh, looking at, uh, at downloading OBS on a, different machine and uh, and running some tests to just see how it goes. So stay tuned. If you ask me in a week, I'll probably will have tested it. Next question. Matthias, uh, Matthias Hutila from Finland, Helsinki. I'm now an iPhone plus MacBook Pro M1 owner and wow, feels like I jumped technologically forward a couple of years and the integration with Apple devices is amazing. I have to blame and thank the Office Hours community about this. You are an expensive but amazing company to hang with. Uh, go ahead, Jason. 
Yeah, I believe I speak for everyone when I say, yes, never before will you spend less to spend more. Like, you know, that's that's kind of, that's that's what we do. So yeah, we're free until you actually pay attention. Yeah, I think that the thing that's transformative about the M1 has been the Mac Minis for me because they are so inexpensive and they are so powerful. <laughs> so, you know, being able to stack up Mac Minis and do what we do, and, and I've got a small collection of them now, uh, being able to make them modal and do what they need to, you know, do what I need them to do in a specific area has really been powerful for me. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, well, congratulations. And uh, let us know if you have any questions. Next question. Kenny Hampton, Greenville, Illinois, up next. Why is Amazon shutting down DP Review? Will we really lose access to all of the archives? Seems like a waste of a great tech resource and years of information. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Amazon went through a major purge last week. They cut 9,000 jobs, and we're talking jobs uh, at AWS, jobs at Twitch, and, of course, the whole staff of DP Review got let go at that point. Uh, from what I understand, uh, the site is going to be active until April 10th when it gets locked down. So if you have any data on the uh, the forums, you can download all that stuff. Shortly thereafter, they're not giving a date when they're going to completely destroy the website, but it's going to go away. And I'm really, really surprised. Either they're not offering to sell DP Review or nobody can afford to buy DP Review because I'm just surprised that it's just going to disappear like that without anybody trying to revive it. It's just a lot of resources. Um, you know, it's, it, to, to, you still have to support it. Like they're just looking at costs and they're looking at once we close it, why, you know, why would we keep paying for all the server costs to keep it there? I think that's the, the distinction they have there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, they won't be able to sell advertising banners on it, uh, advertising on it anymore. But I think all of that information will probably be available on the Internet Archive. So, uh, Internet Archive, right? Yeah. yeah, still be able to access a lot of those reviews for older cameras and stuff, but it won't be up to date, obviously, on new releases. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I just wonder if somebody talked to SmugMug or any of those other kind of semi-major players to see if they were interested in taking the assets and doing something you know, reasonable you with them. I guess the, I guess the question is, what would you do with it? <laughs> like yeah. I thought about it a lot when it, when it was announced. I was kind of like, and we talked about it. I think last week or maybe over the weekend, it, it came up, and and I, I I really thought it was like, when was the last time I went to DP Review? And I couldn't remember when I went to DP Review. And then I, then I think I think Chris asked, when was the last time you read a whole article from DP Review? And I was like, never. So I'm you know like I've never read cover to cover any anything that they've ever done. I I really respect what they did. It was always the high watermark of. You know, you could skip through and look at sensor data and or look at something and find it really quickly. I think the problem was is it was more than what most people wanted. Um, and I think that they, you know, again, as more people, I think part the, one of their big problems is more and more people are using their phones and less and less people are buying cameras. I went to a camera shop in Chinatown last, over the weekend on Sunday with my son and just surprised that just a lot of what it looked like was, was a lot of old cameras. <laughs> there just wasn't, I didn't see a lot of new, new stuff. Um, I think there are definitely, I think Canon and, and uh, Sony, which I just got a Sony, uh, are really breaking some new ground, but, but there aren't that many. It's not like it used to be. All the point and shoots that were interesting before are gone. Next question. Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Alex, you mentioned studio as a service. While the current rental model has been paying by the hour. Do you think the traditional co-working space operators could easily expand into the studio rental market? I go ahead, Courtney. Well, maybe, but I, I think, you know, there's so much the co-worker space, if they're going to stay with that model, they have collaboration, what they call collaboration rooms, which are basically like a, a um, conference room, only it's got AV, it's hooked up to AV and a Zoom room. 
so uh, they can use it to remotely collaborate with other people. And uh, almost all of those those uh, currently co-working space uh, uh, architectures have those. Whether they'd be willing to rent them out because they really have to service a lot of the people in the building, I doubt it wouldn't be that profitable for them. I actually think that you'll end up with some basic studios of different sizes in those co- the WeWork type spaces because all those little companies can't afford to put their own studios in and they can't afford to do their, you know, they have that, they finally get that hit or they get something else and they need to be, or they do a, they want to do a product launch or they want to do a lot of things. There's a lot of density there of a lot of little companies that can't afford it. So having a shared resource there, I think would make a lot of sense. Um, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. How does popcorn go from a hard little kernel to a big, white, fluffy, edible morsel. Yeah, go ahead, Jason, real quick. Okay, so first thing you do is you get one of these. Second thing you do is you get uh, a little bit of heat, and then the heat gelatinizes the starch and vaporizes the water, and that causes the um, the kernel to explode. Yeah, End of story. Go real quick. Yeah, that, that Jason was fine with it. I just heat. It's it's heat and water. Next question. Douglas Carmichael on the latest Iron Maiden tour, the Pro Tools, Pro, excuse me, the Pro Tools workstation was used as a plugin host on the SoundGrid network for non-wave plugins used at front of house. Would a modern Apple Silicon Mac deliver latency low enough to be used for live mixing natively? Go, ahead, Jason. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that. You know, there's been a bunch of discussion. I, I hadn't really, when the Waves thing came out, I hadn't really had the time to uh, uh, to look at it. I actually don't think the price is that bad for the number of plugins that they have there. So I think a lot of people are throwing a tantrum over uh, these plugins being something that, you know, are going to be there. But $250 a year for a lot of plugins, uh, it just really isn't, it's a much better business model for them. And I think we want to think about software sustainability as well, you know, for a, a company that's smaller. Um, but I think that, uh, I don't think that, that's about that big of a deal. I think that people are going to, there's going to be some people publicly grousing, but I think that you're going to find that um, it's probably going to, uh, you know, even itself out. I, I think I, I expected it to be much higher. Like I thought it was going to be, when I saw that they went to plugins, I was like, oh, it's going to be like $100 a month or $80 a month. And it's like 25 bucks a month. <laughs> so, so I think that it's not a bad, not a bad deal for the level of use that they're doing, um, that they're using. And if you haven't bought the Waves plugins, it's really good. It's, it's people who bought them already that I think is... <laughs> makes them edgy. Uh, but the people who haven't bought them, it's a much easier way to get into the into that market um, and make that actually work. Uh, quick reminder that we still have another 20 minutes. And if you want to ask more questions for the first hour or the second hour, you can go ahead and throw those into the, um, into the mix. Uh, and uh, you can also make sure to vote on the questions and let us know uh, which ones um, you are, uh, you're interested in. Next question. Craig McFarlane, Boston, Massachusetts. Does anyone unlock their Macs with an Apple Watch? It seems to work about 30% of the time. Uh, go, Jason. Yeah, I do. Of course, it, I find that it works most reliably when the watch is on the same Wi-Fi network as uh, as the device. The, the Mac doesn't actually have to be connected to Wi-Fi, but as long as it's in Ethernet without restriction, in my experience, it works for the most part. Uh, next question. Bob Sturdevant in San Antonio says, with the upcoming NAB show, what would the panel suggest on the best type of backpack to have in order to walk around videography? What should we stay away from? Go ahead, Jeffrey. For me, it's the smaller, the better. Um, I used to uh, walk around with those little teardrop uh, half backpacks, and now I've got something like this that's super small. 
I don't bring my laptop or anything like that to the show unless I absolutely have to. And then when that case is, uh, I, I try to keep it as small as possible. The biggest thing that you're going to find that if you're wearing the backpack all day is you're going to have sweat rolling down the back. And uh, I don't like that personally. <laughs> Good, Bill. Yeah. In my early days, my rigs were bigger. They've gotten smaller and smaller. I had one that I really liked. There was a carbon fiber uh, two-wheel dolly that had an extensible uh, handle that went up to about four and a half feet, and it had a quarter 20 on the top that you could either mount a camera or a light to. I had a really successful NAB doing a lot of interviews with booths with that because I could just leave it there, take a wireless mic, there was a light on the rig and do a stand-up interview really easily. But even that now feels like too much. I agree with Jeffrey 100%. The, the smaller and lighter and more agile your rig is, the more you will enjoy the process of picking up those interviews and visiting this show. A gear is hard to schlep around trade shows, particularly when they're busy. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. If you're a one-man band and you're having to operate your own equipment while hauling it around, I would go look to, to Port-A-Brace or some of the... Uh, uh, some of the bags are designed for sound mixers to operate on their chest. So you have a harness that goes on, and then the bag clips to the harness on your on front of you so that you can actually operate a mixer or uh, capture streaming, you know, uh, your streaming software, whatever, from in front of you so you have access to the controls. If it's on your back, it's pretty hard for you to access anything. So that's, that's a possibility, although it's not great to haul around because you end up with a lot of weight on your front instead of your back. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that I mostly just, I use the same backpack that I use for everything else, which is a, a Tactical 511 Rush 24 backpack. <laughs> that's just what I, that's what I use everywhere. Uh, what I, one of the things I like about it is you can add webbing to the back of it and you can drop your tripod into it. So you can have a, there's a, there's a, a shoe that you can get that attaches to that webbing um, that's not designed for a tripod, but it works really well. <laughs> so you can set your tripod down in it and it gives it kind of a place for it to sit um, and you can strap it to your to your backpack. And so it's been pretty useful. I've taken it pretty much all over the world uh, and it's worked really well for me. It, the uh, iPads and everything else will actually fit into the little soft pack on the inside of right next to your back. And then the big thing is, is that whatever you're doing, the thing that most people... Uh, uh, don't do is they don't put it over both their shoulders. You should not put anything more than about 15 pounds over one shoulder. Uh, it really is, it, especially over time, over a day, it'll it'll cause a lot of damage to your back. And so, um, so just really think about something that's two-shouldered. Um, I carry that or I carry, oftentimes carry nothing. Um, so I, I do everything I can when I'm going through there. If I'm going to go shoot a bunch of stuff or just do research, I try not to have any backpack at all and just, and just wander through. Um, and that's something that I um, I do often, oftentimes I, I try to make friends with somebody I know at some expo that I can hide my bag somewhere <laughs> so I can, so that I can uh, keep it on the, on the floor, but not have to carry it around all day. So those are the things to kind of think about there. Next question. Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael and he asks with Amazon's job cuts also encompassing Twitch, should content creators leave the platform for fear of Twitch going down the same road as Twitter post Elon Musk? Go ahead, Jeffrey. I don't think so just yet. Uh, right now, they've uh, Twitch is announced 400 jobs are being cut, and the company is around uh, I think about 1,800 jobs. So it's probably they're probably just going to realign a lot of people. I don't think anything is going to change on the on the face of Twitch. People will still be able to access it the same way, um, but uh, they're they're definitely going to be people are going to work a little bit harder. But from what I understand. 
the average uh, uh, Twitch person uh, will work uh, what, some uh, just under eight hours. So this will probably bring them to a full day. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I don't. Uh, we, we haven't seen any any repercussions in Twitch yet of, of anything happening. It's a pretty embedded community, and it's not the same as any of the other communities that are out there. And so I think it's going to be very hard for it to. I, I don't. I don't think that there's any reason to to jump. And I I have to admit that I'm not even. You know, for a lot of people, no one's jumped from Twitter either. <laughs> you know, so, so I mean, like, there's a lot of people that made a lot of noise. <laughs> then there's a lot of people that talk about it, and people talk about Mastodon and all these other things. But for the most part, I have to say that my Twitter experience has not changed at all. Like, literally, it has been a zero impact on my on my experience of Twitter. Um, I have not had one break, one turn, one whatever. Everything shows up exactly. Now I have to admit that I, I filter extremely heavily in, in Twitter. So I've got all these, I got 150 words that I mute and I block lots of people that I don't like. And I just, you know, if they post up, if they fill my space up, if, if I keep on getting the what for you or whatever, and I get people that I don't, I'm not interested in, I just go block. And and I'm, I'm wanton about it. <laughs> and so as a result, I have an incredible Twitter feed, <laughs> like you know, and so I think that it depends on how because I, I just have cool creators and programmers and audio people and everything else, and I and I don't have I have no politics in mine or almost no politics in in my Twitter, um, and so I you know and no current almost no current affairs in Twitter and everything else, and so I don't see anything that every everybody else seems to be very upset about most of the time, um, and so as a result, I'm just kind of like do 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 having a good time. It's it's a it's it's been a fine platform for me. <laughs> so good, Chris. Yeah, I don't understand all the rage about Twitter either. I think it's better. I like the fact that I can edit a tweet. You know, it's like, oop, typo, I can fix it. I can even go back like, what, 30 minutes later? Oh, it does. It's, it's a really weird behavior to do that. Like, I, I did it once, yeah. and I was like, oh, it does this weird copy thing. I was like, I'm yeah. not going to do that again. But I, I, I agree. I, I don't see any problems with it, and I, I do think it's better. I don't know if it's better. It's just that people has, are to weird. me, it's just been pretty much the same. I've just <laughs> like, learned that pe like, people are weird. Well, anyway, so so I, I haven't I haven't seen any any real any real big changes. So I I think that I would probably stick with Twitch. Now, next question, Gordon Lake, Los Angeles, California. Should a setup day be built into every bid, even if it can't happen at the event location? I go ahead, Jason. Any time that load in can't occur the day before for me. Um, I always try to rehearse the load in and the load out. And if I can, just a quick run of show, just a dry run for, okay, this, okay, next, that, okay, next, that. Uh, to me, that feels extremely important. Good, Bill. Yeah, you do have to recapture your time. I used to do the process. My first line on all of my line item things was, the production fee. And I used to explain that to clients who got to the level of looking at the line items is that's what you're paying me to make your video to understand how to do this. I never had any pushback on that. It could be something as simple as 500 bucks for a, a you know, I'm just going to think about this and take half a day to get ready for your show up to five, seven thousand dollars if it was a big thing. And that paid me to go do the location scout and do all the rest of the things necessary so that when I showed up for the actual production, I was a hundred percent ready. That is compensable time that you're spending on behalf of your client. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it depends. It depends on whether you have access to the location in advance and it depends on whether you have a scale, uh, you know, a, a a crew that you can send in in advance to pre-light, let's say, or you know, set up the audio or set up the the video ahead of time, uh, where you're not taking in the whole crew, you're just taking in a you know, skeleton crew to do the setup. 
Uh, and if you're a subcontractor, well, let's say you're the audio mixer and you you realize that, well, this is a bigger production. I'm going to need to rent you know, an extra 20 wireless mics. You build that into your rental charge for your equipment. You just know that you're going to have to spend a day going to the rental house, picking up the equipment, checking it all out, making sure it all works, and prepping it. And it's usually never that is usually never itemized, at least on my invoices. I just up the uh, rental bill when I know I've got to deal with picking up equipment and taking it back uh, right. the day before, you know, the day before, the day before, and the day after. So I build it into the rental cost. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say ever. Um, I mean, I, I mean, every bid. If you have, if you have a kit, so this is where when if you have a kit that's pre-built and it's designed to do a thing, and you're not doing anything other than that thing, and the and you and you have a team that is good at packing it back up again, um, oftentimes you can just keep taking it from one place to the next, and it'll work fine. And you can show up, but you need to make sure that you have a minimum of four hours to set up, and usually you want closer to six to eight hours to set up. Um, and it's not so much that you need that much time. A lot of times our pre-built kits with PixelCore uh, would take maybe 45 minutes to get all set up. Like it was, they were, they'd roll out, you'd roll some cables out, they'd all be, they'd all be ready to go. I still wanted four hours. <laughs> so, cause I want, I want to have, um, I want to have an hour to set up. I want an hour of safety. And then I want two hours to like work with the client. The client starts showing up and then they're talking to you and you can't finish setting up. So the, and the, and the issue is, is that, when you think about how you set things up, you want to think about not just that you produce, when people first get started, they just want to survive the event. And then after that, they want to do the event well. But at some point, they start worrying about how does everyone feel? How does the client feel at the event? Are they stressed? Are Is this working? Is that Do they feel like things are in control? Do they feel like everything, they can make changes? Do they feel like all those things are possible? How do the hosts feel? How do the guests feel? And as you start working on those those things, you need more time. <laughs> you need more time. You need to have time that's it looks like dead time on the schedule, but it's the time that you're doing extra rehearsals, that you're working through ideas, that you're making sure that it is as good as possible. And that's how you keep on moving up the food chain when it comes to doing production. Next question. Matthias Sutil of, uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, wrong one. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. What have been some of the biggest technology announcements you remember at NAB, and do you expect anything similar this year? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of NABs to go to come from, lots of cameras, lots of different things. I'll, I'll talk about this year. Uh, I think AI is going to be the big thing for NAB. Uh, we're still running through, like for instance with audio, still running through um, the major chip shortages. So I don't think we're going to get too much unless they have some new addition to whatever audio that can actually bypass those chips. So that's why I'm thinking something like an AI will really start to come in. We'll see some new stuff. A lot of people will start to see things like the FR7 for the first time and and, and stuff like that. But uh, it's they're they're just trying to get back into the groove for a lot of companies. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I've been going to NAB for a long time, and I remember the uh, uh, announcement that RCA made when they showed in their booth the first three chip television cameras that were not using plumicon tubes, and uh, that was quite a while ago. So, as far as what's available this year, I agree it's probably going to be you know everything's going to be incorporating AI into it. Yeah, go ahead, uh, John. I was at NAB for the red, uh, the big red thing that they had, and and then also the uh, the New Tech Flyer, which was a million years ago, and uh, I'm excited to see Alex and Chris and a bunch of other Office Hours people. 
it's gonna be fun. Yeah, red is probably the red announcement many, many years ago is probably the, the one that I remember the most. It was just the, the booth went crazy. They did the pre-orders. Uh Emery Wells bought a bought a red. <laughs> Emery and Scott Scott Brook uh, bought bought reds. They were like 40 and 42. It was it was really fun. So yeah, so it was um it's a good time. Next question. Matthias Sutila in uh, Helsinki, Finland. What are the must software as a, an Apple user that you need, especially in media industry? Still figuring everything out as a new Apple user. My most recently recent is the Rogue Amoeba podcast suite. Now go ahead, Jason. Okay, I'll make this one quick. Mix Effect Pro works pretty well on an M1 Mac. MIDI is great for playout. Yes, notes. The the default notes app for Mac OS. Preview, still one of my favorites. Uh, Final Cut Pro Library Manager and uh, Downy. That's a short list. Yeah, yeah. Make sure you download Keynote. It's free. You know, and um, and uh, uh, no bomb Omniscope, which you'll see here in just a second as I start to go through some stuff. Uh, but uh, but no Omniscope is a good one to have. Next question. Next one comes from Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois, and he says, what is the current recommendation for a travel microphone worthy for VO auditions? Go ahead, Bill. So I usually take this Sennheiser MKH416. It's very light. Uh, I've got a little piece of PVC pipe that has ends on it so I can make it make sure it's completely unattackable by baggage handlers. Uh, but I've also used EV635s and a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, voiceover, the microphone itself, voice is not a huge bandwidth. And most of the time when you're on the road and you're doing things for travel, you don't have the best circumstances. So I find a less sensitive mic can sometimes be better for this kind of thing. Uh, I've used uh, standard dynamic microphones. You know, you're going to be building pillow forts and things like that in a hotel room to try to keep some of the reverberant sound out of things. So that's what I've done for years. And that or grab your car and get in your car and do a voiceover out there because that's kind of a, if it's not raining and it's quiet, that'll give you a reasonable space to record in. I just remember I, every time someone thinks about it on the travel, I just think of the, the behind the scenes and dirty jobs when you see Mike Rowe under a under a blanket with an SM58 doing all the voiceovers for one of the episodes. <laughs> so that's can be done. Uh, PR40s are really nice because they have a lot of off-axis off rejection and a little bit more high-end than the SM58s. Uh, next question. Bob Sturdevant in San Antonio, Texas says, when working in a high RF environment like a trade show, would radios that do frequency hopping work better or is this overkill? They could, they could, uh, you know, so I, I think that they might make a difference, but I mean, you might be just hopping into something else. A lot of times what you want is something that is going to be, you just have a lot of control over. You may not be frequency hopping, but you may be able to analyze that, um, you know, we're going to probably take an RF uh, analyzer with us to the, to the show and try to find the frequencies that make the most sense for what we're doing. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, frequency hopping, which is different than just frequency selection, where it'll analyze the available RF uh, spectrum and pick a channel out of a, a small number available. Uh, that would work. And But once it picks a channel and locks the transmitter and receiver together, they don't do any frequency hopping once they're locked together. Uh, that would be very handy to have. But frequency hopping, I'd be doubtful about using that. That's actually changing frequency while you're transmitting or while you're recording. Next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois says, I have mixed feelings regarding short videos. Many I see are of no real quality, little more than clickbait. What's the lasting value? Are we training our audience minds for an even shorter attention spam? Uh, go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. I 
you know, I, I remember when Quibi was around a couple of years ago and they, they tried to do that short content in different uh, episodes. Uh, like the Kevin, there was a Kevin Hart thing where he was trying to be an action hero or something like that. And then, of course, that failed miserably. And now I think Roku has all the assets uh, for all those shows. Um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of this stuff is fodder, you know, like uh, pictures of kittens and things like that. But there is a lot of people trying to make some serious content. Uh, we have a local artist here in Wisconsin called Char Charlie Burns. And he does a lot of Wisconsin, you know, Wisconsin type stuff. And uh, he did a, a friend of mine, Brett Newski, who is a musician, just did a video with him. And you should see the production that they had. They, I think they had red cameras in in the in a gym where they were doing some sort of sport type TikToks type things. So there's a lot of people serious uh, on this, and we know that it's going to be long form content. And the best part is, I, I just found out that not only can you make a vertical nine by sixteen, but a, another type of short is a three by four or a four by three. So you could really have some fun with the content that you're doing. And uh, we just have to train people that, you know, let's let's stop with the cat videos and let's start with some serious content. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, go ahead, Bill. It's a discipline. You know, I, I keep going back to that Blaise Pascal's quote about it being uh, I would have written you a shorter letter if I had more time to do things concisely takes effort. It takes thought. It takes paying attention to what you're doing. The worst videos all of us have seen on YouTube are when the person has been talking for a minute and a half and you've learned nothing out of this at all. So if nothing else, this trend towards shorts videos hopefully will cause everybody to get to the point faster, waste less time for people. And even in your bigger videos, if those lessons are learned on the short form and they translate to being more concise in the long form so that your four-minute video becomes a two-minute, really densely packed video, it's a good thing for communications in general. Yeah, and I and I will say that I... I I really like short videos. <laughs> so I, I'm a, I, the worst part for me is that I go up to TikTok and I see like a three minute video and I'm like, I'm not going to watch that. You know, like, you know, you know, like that's that's like way too much commitment. I've noticed that like on YouTube, if I see something more than about eight minutes long, that's that's my my my, my cutoff is eight, about eight minutes. I look at it and I go, ooh, that better be good. <laughs> like, like that, that better be, you know, there are like a Tom Scott or a Veritasium and, you know, you know, there, there are definitely things that I will watch more than eight minutes long. But, but generally, I, I'm like, you better be really good at what you do before I'm going to watch more than eight minutes on, on that. And so what I think is interesting is that, again, the hardest thing to do, we're competing a lot of times with Apple and Netflix. Netflix runs about, I think it's about $75,000 a minute. Apple runs at about a quarter million dollars a minute um, from, you know, and so when you when you look at the budgets of a lot of these shows, and I think Apple's actually higher now, um, but when you look at those, those kind of average bud budgets, you're talking about they can stretch that out 40 minutes long because they're putting a lot of money into it. Um, when someone has doesn't have the money to do that, keeping it short is just a lot easier to, to, to get that out have people get to get to be part of that and not have it be something that is really slow. And I think that people have to do it longer form, just have a really hard time doing that. So I think it's better to be short and sweet. And let people watch a lot of it, but keep on, it's just much easier for the producer to, to produce those things. I don't, I mean, I definitely watch things, still watch longer form things. Um, so I don't, but I do find that I'm much more picky about what I'm getting, you know, that, that I want it to be, I want it to get to the point really fast. So anyway, something to think about. All right, we are, um, we're jumping into it and we're jumping into the second hour. 
we're going to talk about green screen. And we're really going to talk about the screens. <laughs> so, and I think that I probably wasn't as clear on that on the on the description. Uh, you know, I'm going to probably talk less about software today. We will talk about keying techniques, and so I'll talk about some of the things. I'll answer your questions about them. I'll probably not talk about the keying techniques as much in the in my presentation, but I will talk about um, the. Uh, you know, I'll answer your questions related to those things. The reason that we're going to talk about green screens um, is because. That is the thing that gets everybody. You know, the thing that is the most important about what you're doing is the green screen. Um, you can, a lot of software will key green uh, or, or blue, but generally green. The reason, by the way, we use green screen is because for the most part, there's more data there. <laughs> there's a lot more data in, green, in the green channel than there is in the blue channel. Blue channel tends to be a lot more um, uh, noisy. That's where a lot of noise lives um, in the, just the way that the colors are managed. And so, so we'll talk about green screen. Um, and I want to talk, I, I actually produced a big chunk of the green screens in mid journey. <laughs> so, so I was, I was kind of fun. I had some fun with it yesterday, uh, getting ready for this, but I found that I, I can, I can show you some good examples of things that I've seen with other people. I just don't, sh I, I, the hard part that I've had is, is showing people bad green screens because I just don't shoot very many bad green screens. And so I don't have a lot of great examples of that. Um, because, and the reason that I don't shoot very many bad green screens is because I learned very early on that being able to get a great green screen is just the key to the operation, <laughs> like, you know, and, and so when we, when we have uh, gradients, when we have a lot of other things, it becomes a lot harder uh, to manage. No, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to open it up and I'm going to show you some scopes and we're going to talk, you know, with green so that we can kind of talk about, you know, what matters and, and what doesn't matter. And again, I'd like to thank the um, digital, uh, the mid-journey Muppets that, that I'm using for as the examples here. Um, so let me, um, let me go ahead and, uh, see if this works all right um sorry there's a lot of moving parts here there we go all right so what we're looking at here i'm gonna the is um so this is a very typical green screen that we might see from people who are putting these things together and i am going to show some behind the scenes too then we're going to open them to questions the presentation is going to take like five minutes in case you're wondering like how long is he going to talk about this and how many muppets do i have to look at um anyway so uh one of the things you want to look at is i do all of my green screens in scopes so you'll see this is this is what i'm looking at here let me change that color real quick um this is what i'm looking at here um so uh what we're looking for here is there's a couple things in these scopes that we're looking for, and you'll see a better one um, in a little bit. But but basically, we want this line to be thin like this. So this is a, this is a thin version of the line. When when you see this, this is more data that you have to get rid of. And what you're looking at is this is the the values. This is the across the you know this is the um, RGB uh, across this. So this is your um, you know this is red. This is your green, and this is your blue um, that's there. And so basically, uh, what you want to do is figure out, um, you know, how do you look at these and know that you're going to get a good green screen? This will be hard to key. It'll be easier because he's red. But, it's, but it is because what we're looking at here is that these are very close to these. So if the green is close to the red and blue, you're going to have trouble you know, actually keying this. So not having a lot of saturation in the green makes this a lot harder. Um, it's not, it's it's vignetted. You can see this, these edges here and you'll start to pay attention to things like that. This isn't the end of the world 
in a vignette. And the reason is, is if we look at look at what we're actually keying here, um, one of the things that that you can do is you can do you can key it and then pull what's called a, a procedural garbage mat. So you do a hard key, just you nail it, and then you then you pull this, and then you're only paying attention to the area in here. So all the area out here is stuff that you don't have to think about because you're cutting that out. But if you see gradient in here, you're going to have a lot more trouble as you start to work on it because there's this is all in shadow and there's just not much separation over on this side. And that means that you have to push the key harder. You have to increase the contrast. When you increase the contrast, when you're trying to you know, get rid of all of this data, you're basically getting rid of the fine edges. So the, the furry edges that are a little bit green and a little bit another color, they live, they're very, very delicate. They're like little delicate flowers. <laughs> and when you, when you increase the contrast, you crush them. So, um, so you want to kind of keep track of that as you, as you kind of move forward with that. Uh, let me go to another one here. So this is one that looks a lot more flat. Um, and basically, as you look at this, but there's a tilt here. So this means that it's a little darker on this side. Um, and so when I'm looking at these scopes, and I don't, I don't light a green screen without scopes, like ever. So, so, um, so this is, this is tilted this way. Um, and so this means that all of this area here is something you're going to have to deal with. The, the more tilt there is, it's, it's, it's just, it's almost as bad as being wide because it's really the, the green to here to here is something that I'm going to have to work on, um, to make that, make that go. Um, this is even harder when you start thinking about green screen. One of the things that we try to do very quickly is cut people at the knees right here. Let me change that color a little bit here but cut the cut at the knees right here so that we don't have to deal with this bottom bottom area. And one of the things you want to think about when you think about this green screen is you want to um, see how the shadow gets into the psych. So this is your psych here and this is the the shadow. If the sh the shadow if you're going to try to grab onto that shadow later, you need to move that that subject forward so that that shadow never interacts with this back wall because you can see how much brighter the green is here. And when you look at the scopes, I can tell you where the where this is the floor right here, and this is the main green screen behind him. So, um, so those are the things you want to kind of pay attention to. Is you're going to pay attention to what those um, uh, you know, you pay attention to these values, and this value wherever you're grabbing a shadow has to be very very consistent, uh, or it's not gonna, or you're going to have a lot of trouble pulling that out, and you have to recreate it, which is which is no fun. Um, so let's go to the next one here. This is what I see a lot of, <laughs> which is, which is the, the, you see it's underlit. You've got all these, uh, you've got all these wrinkles, you know, all around it and people think, well, it's green screen and I can just pull it out. And with this red head, you could probably pull it out. Um, but, but the main thing is, is that, is that what you're looking for here is you've got, it's very low again. So these are all very close to each other. It's, it's, it a very, you know, you have very little room to work. So when it's dark, you have very little, uh, very few grid gradations of green to work with and um, in very d few areas. And so that, it's a very low resolution mat because now you have to try to pull it from almost no data. You want that green to be sitting up at 70%, you know, to make that actually work um, so that you have, that means you have all this room, you know, up here. So this is where you want that green to be. And you'll see one that's even more than that in a second. Um, and uh, here's one, this is what a lot of people, some, someone asked about green screens. This is a subject too close to the background. So this is the shadow. You, if you have the, the um, 
<laughs> Chris, are you are you enjoying my my Muppets? Did did I hear you say you made all these in Mid Journey? <laughs> I made them all in Mid Journey. I'm, I'm it's very, just I'm very they're hysterical. Can you make one with with um, Elmo, Oscar the Grouch, and I'm doing Monster it right now, all Chris, in one? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the, the, the best. I was like, how do I create all these different examples? And I was like, I can just do this in Mid Journey. So anyway, so um, but what was the prompt you made? Elmo on a green screen. No, no, I, I didn't use any names because I just said wall. Muppet. Muppet in front of a in front of a green wall, and I had a couple different versions of green wall that I gave it, and wrinkled background, and you know I had you know I gave it different commands, and then I produced like two hundred. Can we do that second hour tomorrow, please? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So anyway, so so he's standing. The problem is this is this is something we see often when you're too close to the screen. So when you're too close to that screen, uh, you um, you get these these contact shadows, and that is. You know, what you're getting is what you see when you see it on the scope. Like, I don't need to look at this to tell you that you have a contact shadow. I can look at that. <laughs> like, you know, that is the, there's that shadow there. Now, if you want them to have them look like they're against a wall, then you can try to key that out um, and, and make that work. But this is that variance. And here's the variance here. This variance that we see here is from here to here, right? So that's, that's, the, that's what you're seeing in that area. And that's a thicker line. It's gonna be harder to key. You're gonna end up losing edge detail. It doesn't mean that you can't key it. It's just that you, as you start to increase the contrast to get rid of this, you're, you're basically losing the resolution on, the, on your edges. So all the little gray edges that you could have every little hair and everything that you wanted is gone because you had to turn up that contrast to get what you're looking for. And by the way, you say, well, I don't see really clean green screens in movies. You also don't see much hair like when you see the keys. That's one of the reasons people say, oh, I don't like CG is because a lot of times the keys are so hard on a lot of people that you, that, that, you, know, that you don't get a lot of that detail because the, the, the green screens weren't there. Also wrinkly. Um, so you have the, uh, so this doesn't, you know, this is something a lot of people don't pay attention to. They, you see this a lot on YouTube when YouTubers, they're like, oh, I just threw together a, um, I threw together a, uh, background and it's all wrinkly and it's got all this stuff. Now look at this, look at this. <laughs> it's so sad. So you have, and the big thing, the big problem that you have is that you have tons of green intermingling with the red and the blue. So those values at the same location are all mixing together and um, and it makes it much, much harder for you to actually remove, remove, the, remove those green screen areas there. Now, those are all the things we don't want to do. So we use Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the way most of our keys look. Not a Muppet, uh, um, and uh, and so this is this is the way. Um, so so that is this is a key. Now what you're going to look at here is notice compared to all the things that didn't work there um, is notice the delta between here and here, right? So there's a huge difference, and I'll show you how we did that. But there's a huge difference between where the green screen is and where the red and the blue are here. And that makes that is that makes a dramatic difference in the quality of, of your screen. Now, this is what we call green on green, which is a very dangerous way to key. I will show you how to do it, show you how to do it safely, <laughs> but, but green on green uh, is there. And now you'll see this isn't sitting right nice, right up at 90 and notice how even it is. So it's a it's a it's a it's very even and it, and that line is thin. I worked with the DP from, from that used to work at ILM and I remember the first time he walked in and he saw this, he's like, I've never seen a green screen like that before. <laughs> you know, he's, I've worked on a lot of movies. I've never seen that. Um, and the way you get here is not with your eye and it's not with a light meter. It's with scopes. This is why we use scopes on set all the time. We tune everything by looking at the scopes, looking at how, how far can I get the distance. This, 
distance between the green and the blue and the red, you want it to be at least 30 points, right? If it's, you know, in a full scale, 30%. At least 30% between those two. As, the, as you close that distance, it's going to be harder and harder to key the edges. It is not hard to key. So basically, again, to think about this uh, as you go through this, it is not hard to key this, this part, right? That part is a core mat. You can key, if, if, even if there's something a little bit in different, different areas, that's not hard to key. It is also not hard to key this part. This is a garbage mat. So what you can do here is you can do a hard key that, that is just on these edges, and then you create the, then you knock all of this out. And this is partially what Ultimat does, by the way. <laughs> and then, and it just does it internally for you. Um, and then you do a core mat and you knock all, all of, uh, all of this out here. And now you're only dealing with those edges. So the only thing you really care about is where the green is in those edges. But the, it's a lot easier to do when it's like this. And we were keying about 10 hours. Why you get good at this is when you start keying 10 hours a, a week of footage. If you don't get it right, it doesn't, it, it, it just takes so long. It's not that you can't get it out. We had to get to a point where it was like touch, 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 touch. You know, I'm just, I'm just touching on the green and it's gone and I have all the hair detail I need and everything else and then I deliver it to the client. And so, and, and I deliver it at a level that at the time when we started doing these keys, um, we, this was probably 15 years ago, uh, there was nobody else in San Francisco that could produce them. <laughs> you know, so the whole Bay Area could, couldn't produce that volume at that quality, you know? And so, and, and it's also why, the reason I'm talking about this as green screen is it's also why um, we uh, don't, uh, it, it, it's why like if someone asks like, how much does this cost if I, uh, how much does it cost if I, you know, to have somebody else shoot it and I double the cost? Because I know that the entire cost of my structure is actually, it's the cost of it is, is doing it with the, it's, it's the shooting is, is the part that matters. So let me move this over here and, um, we will, uh, I'm gonna show you uh, now, we're just gonna go into the next one here. Here's some behind the scenes here. So this is what, you know, here is um, us shooting here. This is in a little office. So this is in a big, big space um, that's there. And what I have are, are two, these two, these two areas here. These are um, four by fours, the old Kina flows. And I still try to use them when I can because it just, they work really well. But these are green bulbs inside of, on a green screen. And that's what creates that super pure green. Now. What's really important is that you can't have it spill. And you can see the spill coming from this direction, but the further away she is from that background, and you'll see the reverse here in a second, the less that the angles here, the coming from the green screen will get to the camera. So the, there's less wrap you know, on, on them. So the, as you pull away from a green screen, there's less of reflection of the green onto your, onto your clothes. So here you can see the reverse. Um, this is the F950, and then this is... Is this the old Pixel Core office? Yeah, it's the old Pixel Core office, yeah. So um, this back here is just a wall that we painted green. <laughs> like, it's not... There's nothing special about it. It was the wall that was there. We put a couple We put a couple um, primer on it. We sanded it, made sure it was as smooth as we could make it, and then we painted it green. Sometimes we rolled something out to cover this, but a lot of times, unless someone's paying me to do it, I will not key below the knees. Like, you know, I, I'm just like, okay, why are we doing that? If we need to, fine to do it, but it costs extra to do the feet because that now you're dealing with shadows. Now you're dealing with a different green screen. Now you're dealing with, and, and so you just want to know that there's a lot more work. As soon as you go down below the knees, you are now into a lot more work than, than what you had before. 
Um, this is something that you don't do. This is actually the very first Mac, Mac break video uh, shoot, and this was Amber MacArthur. I thought, oh, I'll just put a green screen over top of my desk. And that was a disaster. Like the amount of work that this created with contacts and people, talk, you know, it was that's what delayed Mac break for like three months was me trying to figure out this this part here. Remember at 1080p back, in, you know, 15 years ago, that was a problem. Now this is a big psych. Um, one thing you'll notice, you'll see a couple times, is there's stuff we don't we cover up the green psych as much as we can if we're not using it because you don't want it to spill, you don't want it to bounce back up, you know, as you're as you're working. Here's a more portable one we did in a hotel room. Um, this is very, this is, these are composite component uh, green. Uh, that's all I use is composite component paint, composite component uh, Lycra. Um, and, and this is very high tech PVC piping <laughs> that we get. So we could, we didn't, we never carried it with us. Well, sometimes we did. It was really nice and light, but it also meant that I could go most places in the world and find it. So that was another thing that was a little easier um, to make that actually work. Now, in this case, we, you know, the, the client really wanted this kind of side lighting, which was fine, but we still hidden back here, which you can't really see, but along this line, you can see where that bounce kind of ends. But there's right behind here, those, those Kino flows doing it. Now, the other thing to think about as you look above it is that the way we set this up is that on, if we, if we think about the, the green screen here, that's going across here, um, we have uh, a light here pointed at the far end and a light here pointed at the far end. So we're not trying to, otherwise you end up with pools of light. So if you aim your kinos to the far corner of each one and then move them, it's a lot easier to get, get, a, get a real even, um, even key there. Um, here is a, here's a wider one in, in another studio. This is the PixCore studio a while ago. You can see that we covered all of this stuff up. Um, you can see me with a lot darker hair. Um, and, uh, and so much smaller. <laughs> so, um, and then, uh, um, but this is a psych and you'll see we covered that psych up all the way. Now you can see that we have lights up in the top, but again, very, very smooth uh, background because we know that I'm gonna have to key that. I'm gonna have to key a lot of it and I don't wanna do a lot of work on it because that's expensive. Um, here's another one that, that is, um, you know, that we're keying into at, at a location. Um, and again, this is, this is our Interatron. Um, this is our, our subjects. We know that we're, we're, we're keen from here. We don't try to cover anything else. Um, these blankets here are for sound, um, mostly. And so, uh, but again, they're separated out, you know, from that, you know, from that process. So, um, and, uh, here's kind of a wide shot of a green screen that we have here. Uh, this was done, I think, again, we, we would build these all over the, all over the world. Here's what it looks like from behind. So you can see the green here. Here's our main key lights. There's hidden up here some hair lights. Um, but that's what, you know, that's how we kind of had that built. Um, now, here's the interesting thing is when given the choice, this is my insert studio that was in DC. When given the choice, I'll still put a monitor behind people. Like, I won't key if I don't have to. If the person's just going to sit here and, and I just need a background, I'm just going to key them. I'm just going to put a, a monitor back there because it's, I'm going to get more hair, hair detail. It's going to work better. I'm going to have more control over it. But I do have the, the key. And again, those those Kino flows are there if I if I needed them there. Um, also, this is, a, this is one. Now, what we did here was this is for Oculus. And what we did is we stretched that Leica all the way around a substructure. But we, again, you can see how smooth we worked on getting it to, to light. This, by the way, is so that we can sync the focal length of the camera, position and focal length of the camera to the game camera that's inside of Oculus so that we could composite it so that it looked like his hands were throwing fireballs. We did this for E3, it was kind of fun. Um, but the, the reason I brought this up is because this is really important because syncing your focal length beyond the keying, 
syncing your focal length um, and your focus and everything else with your the environment that you're shooting in or whatever you're gonna put behind them, getting those two to match is also a big part of making a, of selling a green screen is to make that actually work. So that's a quick overview of green screens <laughs> themselves and how we kind of approach that. Um, and it looks like we got a lot of questions. So we're gonna go ahead and uh, and jump into the first one. Matt Cool from Montreal, Canada writes in, please explain the difference between 422 and 444 color and why one is better than the other for green screen. Sure. So uh, 444, basically what this is, is this is in the YUV space. Oops, let me get another color here. Um, so you have, uh, and, and really you want to think about it as, you know, you have Y and then, and then UV. And Y is, in fact, I can do this like this. Y is the white. And then we'll have you, we'll just do it this way here like this. So these are the color channels and this is the black and white channel. And um, what that color means is color scale. So it's not compression. It's the scale of the color that's that's within it. So um, it's the size of the image that's being managed. So for why, in a four in a four 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 one one four two two, that means that there are uh, four pixels that are um, that are for the why, and then the UV are the color. And um, and Courtney can probably talk more about the history <laughs> of the color, but um, but anyway, but we added the color, and what happened is we didn't have enough bandwidth to just do four 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 to put the same amount of color in as the black and white. Uh, we didn't have the we didn't have enough uh, bandwidth to do that, and so what we figured figured out is that if we cut it half scale, and we made this um, you know basically two pixels for each of these for every one every every four pixels of those, it's half resolution. Um, we were able to get away with uh, we were able to get away with a lot. We it was a smaller image, and no one noticed the difference unless you're keen. You're gonna say something, Courtney? Is it four pixels or four bits you're talking? It's four pixels. Yeah, four pixels. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so the uh, yeah the so the chroma uh, uh, subsampling is the U and the V, and yeah. you notice it a lot less uh, since your contrast is all comes from your luminance. Yeah, and that's when they went to uh, to explain the history of it. When they went to uh, a transmission, you couldn't get uh, that much into the bandwidth of a standard broadcast transmission, so they had to compress the chroma subsampling. Uh, to allow uh, much more, uh, uh, you know, higher definition to be transmitted at a lower rate, which would fit into the bandwidth. And you don't notice it that much since most of your detail comes in your luminance. Yeah, what we think of as sharpness is all the luminance. Um, and then what happens is with a with a 444, you have the same amount of, you have the same number of pixels of the U and the V as you do with it. And so what that means, what you what happens when you go to 422 or in some cases with DV, it was 411. And when it's compressed, it can be 420. It can be a lot of different things there. When you do those things, what you end up with is um, you end up with jagged edges along, along here. And so if you look closely on your key, you'll see a little stair-stepping where it wasn't there before. So if you go to the color, you'll see it fine. When you look at the key, you'll see stair-stepping. That's the 422. And the 422 is because you're at half resolution there. And so now one of the ways that you can get around that is if you key footage at 4K for 1080p, for instance, you're getting, it's half resolution, but that resolution, that half resolution is the same resolution as the as the 1080p was. It's not a perfect relationship, but it's pretty close and you won't notice the stair-stepping at that point. So it, it does work to key at a higher resolution than what you need to get rid of that 422. There are very few 444 options these days because of the way that the cameras got built 
Um, there just aren't that many cameras that do 444 um, anymore. The camera that I have over my shoulder that way, that that's the 950 and it does do 444. I don't know if it does anymore. I haven't used it for a long time, but but it it you know that we used to have three CCDs that were capturing that. Almost everything now is is 422. Now if you capture log or you capture raw, you can translate that back into a 444 uh, grouping. It's got the bare you know, debearing de in there. So there's a little bit of softness there, but it is, it is going to be, you know, what, you're, what you're stuck with when you're doing live video is the 422. Um, I, I miss, I miss uh, wrote that four. Um, so with live video, it's very hard to get over four, four, get back to 444 and you have to deal with that little bit of stair stepping. You can soften it a little bit. Um, for the, uh, for post, you can still, of course, capture things that are gonna allow you to actually do that. Uh, next question. Morgan Price from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada writes in, how would panelists light an Elgato XL-shaped green screen behind a talking headshot like office hours? You have some one and two foot RGB tube lights. How would you position the lights on the sides or at the top and the bottom? How close to the screen, et cetera? Thank you. Yeah, so the Elgato um, is the Elgato XL um, screen. Hold on. Is this the one that's six feet wide? Yeah, yeah. So this is the... Um, it's uh, yeah, six or maybe almost six feet wide. I will tell you that I have used this Elgato screen, and it is uh, it it's just barely wide enough. <laughs> like you know, because here's the problem: is, is you want to have you know typically if you have the green screen back here, you want your subject to be you know a minimum here of five feet, in my opinion. Like that's how I key things that work. As you start to close this, as you start to, um, you know, close this distance here, what you're going to do is you're going to start getting, you know, a lot of, you know, spill coming across here that is, that's problematic and it's going to be harder for you to key because, you know, remember if you look at it from the side, um, if you look at it from the side here and then you have the, you know, you have your, your person uh, here, the, the issue that you get into is that the, this is hitting the front, the top and the front, this diffuse lighting. And it's, you know, so the closer, the higher this is, and then the further away, but as, as you move it closer, you're gonna have more problems. So the Elgato screen is, is can be used, it's just hard. Now, if you're gonna do that, um, what I would do is I, I would have the, the screen here and you're gonna have your person here. And what you're still gonna do is try to, I mean, what I would still do for, for that screen, is I would still put my I'd still put my lights on either side of the person. I would try to get enough so where I could do this, but I would very carefully put a flag right here. So if you put if you flag this off on both sides, you're going to end up being able to keep those lights off of the person. I wouldn't with an Elgato screen. I would use white lights and not green lights. It's just too you're going to be too close. Um, so if if it, if, it, if it hits a little bit, it's going to be okay. But flagging it should allow you to do that but I'd have the lights on either side there to, to do that. It's gonna be the easiest way to key it. Uh, next question. Richard Lavery from Belfast UK writes in, any tips for getting rid of green screen tinge around the hands as they move? And then he has a link to an example. Yeah, motion blur, that one shot that I showed uh, with person move, moving her hands, that's why we were testing that actually. Um, and so motion blur is one of the hardest things and the subsampling of 422 and compression makes it much harder. Um, so that's gonna mix all those things together. It makes it much more difficult. So that's where you really want that higher quality 
uh, capture to make that a lot easier. You, what you're looking for is to produce what we call an unspill operation, which um, a lot of times you can, tr you can sometimes get, it's not quite an unspill, but there's an unspill operation inside of the Ultimat, um, but you can get an unspill basically is desaturating based on the key. So you have, a, you have that raw key and you use that to reduce the saturation. You can bring it down to gray, um, you know, fairly effectively. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I wondered if you use as a, if you have the post-production, if you're not doing something live, if you have the ability to to, to capture at a short shutter angle, in other words, so you minimize the, the uh, motion blur during capture, and then you do your composite and then add it back in after the composite is done. That way you don't have the stuttery look of a short, you know, of a, uh, a narrow shutter angle combined yeah. with... Uh, it's hard. The, the math, the math with that is hard. The only shutter angle that we found is effective for that is 120 frames a second. So you, so then you, it requires a lot of light. <laughs> so, but the good news is it, it you you leave the 120 frame per second open at 360 degrees, so that it's basically the same amount of light you would need for a 60 frame per second uh, camera. So it's not a huge amount of light that you need, but more than 24 or 30. And then the the key is is that those frame rates are evenly divisible back into the 120, so you can go back down to 60, 30, 24, um, and use those extra frames to reconstitute the motion blur, and you'll have a lot less motion blur to work with at the 120 frames per second. A little bit, you know, it's and so uh, we found that, that that is a doable thing. It takes a lot more post to do that, um, and people have turned up the shutter angle. Um, now people have tightened that shutter angle instead of frame rate. I, that, I'm talking about frame rate, not shutter. I'm sorry. Um, I'm talking about the the frame rate that we we go up to to do that. When you turn the shutter speed up, the problem is is that you are getting less motion blur, but you have no data. The reason we turn the frame rate up is because we want the data, the in between frames, to be, rebuild that motion blur. When you turn the shutter speed up and then rebuild the motion blur, it's not nearly as good as when you had actual frames to to give you a, a guidance on the pixel trajectory. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I see. But that that does, you know, quadruple your storage. Sure enough. Transmission. Which is why almost uh, nobody does it. Time, yeah. <laughs> rather than rather than interpolating the frames to get them back yeah. in in post. It's very rare to do that just because it's not, it's usually not clean if you have something, any, anything that's remotely complicated. So the other problem you get into with reconstituting motion blur do it in front of reflections, do it in front of a complex background, do it in front of other things, and that becomes really hard to reconstitute without a lot of errata. Uh, next question. Andy Korkenwerfer from Vieira, Florida writes in, how do you pull off a solid key for Zoom with little physical space between the subject and the green screen? It's hard. Uh, you know, I, you need four or five feet to do it really well. Like, so you can do, you can do an okay key and you can, if you're willing to, if the person doesn't have a lot of flyaway hair and so on and so forth, you can get away with, a key that's much closer that looks okay. You know, like it, it looks okay or even, you know, mediocre, basically above average. You can do a lot of things with the person maybe two feet away, but to get a really good key, you're gonna need three or four feet so that that green screen can be lit separately and evenly and the person is lit in the foreground correctly. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you can get away with it with a rear illuminated green screen, uh, which you could use a, a large LED wall, yeah, LED monitor, uh, you know, liquid crystal video display. So it's providing its own illumination so there are no shadows involved. Mm -hmm. So then you can put a person right on top of it as long as you don't have, as long as your screen is big enough to cover the uh, key area that you need to key them out. So that's one way to do it. Yeah, we've done that a little bit. 
that's it's usually producing so much light. We found it was easier just to do reflective. Um, it it we get a lot more spill with a with a, re, a rear projection green screen, um, and that's been the challenge that we've had there. Um, well, what uh, I was going to say, what I did, I, I in my software that I've built for doing uh, playback, I have green screen software that puts green screens up on monitors, and I can dial down the level easily right. to prevent the spill, but still get a clean key and that not deal with. Shit. Yeah. And if you have enough control, we just never, we always were like, oh, we, we experiment with it. And then we go, okay, that didn't work. <laughs> we spent, it was, it, it, I think what happens, you get good at something, but uh, that was the, and that was the, the challenge that we had there. Um, next question. David Brady from New York, New York writes in, what are the best use cases for green versus blue screen technology? Uh, we will use green unless we have to. Like, so blue in dark environments, you're trying to key the person into a, into a nighttime scene. Uh, or into a dark scene, dark background, sometimes we'll lean towards blue because it tends to blend a bit better with darker backgrounds. So with a darker background, we might use blue. When people are wearing green, we try to, we sometimes consider blue. But even, you can usually key a green close to a green easier than over blue because there's so much, you know, uh, you know, grain and everything else and, and noise in the blue channel. A lot of times we've gone to blue and then wished we had just stuck with green. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if uh, the story involves Robin Hood, the Hulk. Yeah. Uh, but even know. then, a, a a you don't want to be too afraid of green. A desaturated dark green will key over a well-lit green screen um, perfectly. You know, so, so and, and better than, you know, it, it doesn't, because again, as you increase the quality of that green screen, your precision, your ability to remove another green or something else with more becomes, you, you, you have a lot of precision to work with. So we found that even in things where we had green plants and we had green shirts and we had other things, we found it easier just to go ahead and key it. The other thing we do is sometimes we have them wear blue. We've had stuff where we've had them actually, the person wear a blue shirt over a green screen. We key them out, but it's easy. It's relatively easy for us to grab the blue and change its color. <laughs> so we just do a color a color transform on the blue and go back to where we want to go. I actually did a whole Mac, we, you know, because we record Mac, we used to record Mac break video and we'd record lots of them all in one day. And just as an experiment, I did, a, I did one where I just wore a blue shirt over the green screen, and we just changed the color of my shirt every episode. You just episode. did a huge shift the whole yeah, time? Yeah, we just did a huge shift on the blue. On every episode was slightly different. People were like, wow, he's got a lot of those shirts. Um, next question. Andy Korkendorfer from Vieira, Florida writes in, is it still best practice to use a minus green black backlight on subjects? Uh, we don't do that anymore. Um, you know, if, if, you have a, if you have a solid green screen and you light the person well, Still having highlights makes it a little easier, but we don't need to put any kind of, you know, we don't have to warm the edges at all. I mean, if you have a precision green, uh, again, if you have a bad green screen, maybe, but if you have a really, really good uh, uh, green screen, you should be able to um, not have to do any kind of uh, edge treatment with lights. Um, next question. Matt Cool from Montreal, Canada writes in, how can you be sure you have a 444 workflow? Well, when you open it up, when you go to the different channels, um, especially if you convert it to YUV, uh, you'll really see it. Um, you'll see the stair stepping pretty quickly if you're if you're there. And if you key it, if you do a key, even a good key, and you zoom into the edges, if you look at the if you look at the edge of whatever you're looking at there, and then the and then the actual key, you're going to see half resolution. Like it's there. Like it's not it's not it's not it's not hard to see. Yeah, next question. Paul Wahoos writes in from Austin, Texas. What is the ideal lighting setup for a green screen? Well, I think it depends. You know, it, it depends on how big the green screen is. Um, I think that I didn't, sh I might not have shown one 
image that it's going to be a little hard for me to grab onto right now. Um, when you get into visual effects, sometimes you 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 have you you end up using lanterns, you know. So that's another you kind of convert to a bigger uh, thing, and 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 so that's going to be a slightly you know. Let me see if I can pull this in. This one's going to work. Yeah. Um, but the uh, oh, here we go. Oh, I did that. Uh, here's the like when you get into this. This is a when green screen gets larger. <laughs> so, um, and what you can see here is these are the lanterns that we're using for you know for that, uh, and that's giving the nice soft light here. Now these are tracking markers that are green on green, uh, so we can we have some way to key them, but we we also need to track them. Um, and then, you know, but as you start to do this complex lighting, you will end up with not as even a green screen. Um, but, but this is, um, this is when things get much more complicated. So lanterns are used for the larger ones. Again, in smaller ones where we'd mostly use it, we would have a, uh, um, we would typically use the, the, the lighting that I showed earlier. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. And if you're using the green on green, a good rule of thumb is, uh, take the width of the green screen and divide it by two and put, make sure your lights that are illuminating the green screen are that distance, at least that distance away from the right and the left side so that the fall off is equal as they overlap uh, behind them so that you'll get a good even spread. So you take the width and divide by two and you put the, make sure the lamps that are illuminating the green screen are that distance away from the green screen background. That's and, really without, good and you have to make sure the person is in front of those lamps so right. they won't spill on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and it's good math. I've never, never. I, we we know roughly what it is, but I've never actually. And again, one of the things that we do there is if if we look at it, if we look at that green screen here, we are when when I do it at least, we have our our lights and we're pointing each light across the green screen to the far end, and and then is we find it a lot easier to get an even green screen than if we were pointing it like this and this and having them overlap. It's just been easier for us to turn them this way, and uh, and get that that geometry. Um, I just did it over top of my... Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, next question. Uh, Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts writes in, has anyone used or looked at Sub2R's active green screen? Craig, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so I bumped into these guys at, uh, at a trade gaming show. Uh, and it's basically a foldable active uh, or backlit um, green screen. And I was really surprised at how... Even, you know, it's it's kind of almost like an optical illusion because it was this box or, you know, it was a foldable, like a, you'd put behind you. Uh, but uh, it was really amazing how even the color was. Uh, there wasn't any wrinkles. It was, and you could tear it down and set it up. Uh, and I hadn't seen a lot of the active backlit stuff before, so I thought I'd ask. I think this is kind of it, it's a it's another version of i think what what courtney was talking about um it looks really really interesting yeah so i i i can't quite tell how you know the exact size it looks like it's about the right size it the uh you might have a hard time i think you'd have you'd have a hard time getting a full body out of it i think you'd end up turning i would end up turning it sideways and setting it back there but wow that's really interesting i'm gonna i'm gonna have to do some more research on that yeah, Go ahead, courtney. A couple of videos Sorry, I was just going to say, there's a couple of videos on the site about um, using it outside. So quick temporary outside locations and nighttime and other things. Yeah. It's really yeah. interesting. Really interesting. I always Go thought ahead, that uh, a good way to, to create something like this, an active green screen, is to take the diffuser that they build into the backlight panels of most of the cheaper LED screens. Yep. So you just put edge 
white LEDs around the edge and a plastic uh, that conducts and diffuses that light into a big white panel. Yeah. Uh, only in this case, it would be a big green panel, and you'd have a nice smooth green screen backlit, and it wouldn't be very thick, so you wouldn't have to have a lot of depth behind it to light. Sorry, I, just, I think I... Did you stop talking? Do we still have audio? Oh, oh maybe okay. I, I think I hit the mute button. Did you get I the hit something. That I was moving something while you did that, and I thought that I had somehow hit something that knocked off the audio, and I was like, what happened? You know, like, like I was like, I don't even know how that's affecting that. So anyway, so... too quick on the mute button. No, that, that, that was, it was just that it all happened at the same time. Um, all right, um, yeah, let's go to the next question. Paul Walhus writes in from Austin, Texas, what's the minimum width and height for a talking head green screen like on office hours? You know, I would say six by seven. Uh, the, there's these Manfrotto ones that pop open. Uh, I think they're now, I think they're Manfrotto or they're now something else. Uh, they changed the name, I think. But uh, it is, um, or they used to be called Lazolite and now they're Manfrotto. Uh, but six by seven is the right size uh, for that. And that's going to allow you to be three or four feet behind and you're still going to have the green there. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, would there be a short course on how to effectively use and read scopes? Well, we did a little bit there and we're going to bring, we're going to get some more people to talk about scopes more in the future. Um, but that's, if you go back and look at what I showed you, that's how we use it as we relate, as it relates to green screen. But there's lots of different ways of using scopes and we will talk about that more in the future. Uh, next question. Chris Fenwick from Emeryville, California, and on the panel writes in Elmo, Cookie Monster, and Oscar the Grouch are in the same scene. How do you key all three of them into one shot? Uh, you could skip that if you want. I already got that joke in earlier. I apologize. I, I will say that I think that, you know, the, the, that Cookie Monster, is it Cookie? Which, uh, Oscar the Grouch is a dark green. He's a dirty green, yeah. He's a dirty green, and he would key fine over a well-lit green screen. Like, it's it's a saturated green. Kermit. And, uh, Kermit might be harder, but we'll have to try that. I, I same, have to ask Same problem with uh, Superman, the Green Lantern, and, and yeah. the Flash. Yeah, exactly. And the Hulk, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of times we call that, when we're doing it for visual effects, it's divide and conquer. You you, you key each person separately and then recombine the keys. So, and, and Alex, in all seriousness, if there's... Um, pat crossover between them. Does that just become, oh, now I got to roto this one yep. little bit? Yeah. One thing to know is that in visual effects, 80% of all shots, I don't know if this is current, but in the lat, it was mentioned to me 10 years ago or something, 80% of all shots are rotoscoped. There's some rotoscope, there's some cleanup by hand of the edges in 80% of visual effects shots. And they, they, I was like, what, what are the 20%? They're like the ones without green screen, like the ones that are just pure <laughs> CG, you know, like, you know, without people in it. But if you put a person in it, there's almost always some cleanup that you're going to do that's going to be a little bit of something isn't working. It's faster to to do it by hand than it is to, for a visual effect shot, it's faster to do it. Now, when you're doing live green screen, that's why we have to really understand what we're doing because we can't, we don't have the luxury. When you're doing a big production, you have so many people on set that you can't make the green screen perfect because there's you're, you're burning too much time, you're burning so much money per minute that you can't do that. So you have to just do the best you can and then you're going to leave it to the one roto artist for each shot or the five roto artists for each shot. It's much smaller than the 200 that are waiting for you to do the next shot. So there is math. When they say do it in post, there are times when that is completely appropriate because it just doesn't make sense. I think one of the things that I remember you saying a while back, Alex, I, that I really took to heart was um, that often you would have a, uh, a cell on your spreadsheet that tells you yeah. how much money you're spending per minute to solve a problem. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, like, I, if we are paused, if we're waiting on catering, if we're waiting on makeup, if that guy's standing too far away, this is going to cost me this many dollars per was, minute of sitting around. It was so useful because because we, you would sit there and just go, how long is it going to, like you'd see some guy's leg sticking out from the green screen and, and you'd do the math and you'd be like, to fix that's going to cost me you know, $200 or $300 to fix that, that problem, or it's going to take someone about an hour and I'm paying X amount of dollars per hour. And you do the math really fast if, if you know what it is. Yeah. And, but at the same time, you try to think of those things, the, the, especially for the amount of green screen that we, we did, it wasn't about the keyer. Almost anything will key stuff that I shoot because I can, I'm handing it, you know, the reason we talked about green screen today is because if you hand your keyer, great green screen, it, every keyer will look good. You know, every, it is a, it is a simple, the simple, the simplest math. If you have a good green screen, the simplest math is I'm going to take the red and the blue channel. I'm going to average them. So I'm going to add those two numbers together. A lot of us think about, um, we think about a pixel and we think about it being a, you know, a green or a red, but it's not, it's a number. You know, the, it's just a number. And so your red on this pixel might be 30, your green might be, you know, 230, and your blue might be 40, you know, whatever that is. What you're doing is, is you're taking, to get your key, you're taking these two, um, you know, these two numbers here, and you're adding them together and subtracting them, you know, from, uh, you know, adding them together uh, and, um, and then dividing them by two. So you'll have, you know, these are, you know, so that'll be, that value will be 35. And then you're subtracting that from the green screen. Now, this is a green screen part, right? So that's going to be 195. That's going to be its point, Oop. Uh, 195. And then if I take another pixel and I say, this one has got a person in it, so it's 180 and it doesn't have very much green in it. So, but it might have a little bit, so it's like 30, but it's a person that has some blue in them and everything else. And then that's going to be, um, let's say, you know, 100 and 120, right? Oops, well, anyway. So... Now I take the average of these two. So this is the green screen was 195. When I take these and I add them together, of course I get 400 and then I divide it by, um, I get 400 here and I divide it by two, I get 200. So now I've got 200 for my foreground. Um, now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna subtract that average from the 95 and I get negative five. And that means black because it just hits the bottom of black. And so when you get a key, Basically, when you did that, this is the math of green screen, right? Of, of what we call a linear key um, or, a, or a, you know, so, um, and it's, it's a very simple math and you just get the black anytime it goes below zero. So whenever these, these average numbers together are more than the green, it goes to black. And so, and when they're close to it, it's dark gray. And when they're not any of it, it's green. <laughs> you know, so you get that key and that's, that's what's defining it. And if you understand this math, then you are looking at your key you're looking at how you're setting up through scopes with that math so that you understand like, what am I going to get to and how am I going to get there? Um, yeah, go ahead, Jason. I would go so far as to say a really good green screen shot, something that's really, really shot well is substantially easier to key than what most people think is the easiest thing to key, which is, you know, a lower third on a yeah. downstream key yeah, by no, 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 far. It's, it's easier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, next question. Gunagalis Carmichael writes in, would an ATEM Mini be an entry-level hardware device that can key well, or could MIMO Live do it just as well in software? They'll both, they'll both key it. The, the MIMO Live uh, keyer is a little 
complicated. <laughs> so, so, um, so I think that it'd probably be easier to use the ATEM uh, as a keyer. And I will say that the keyer is built in, especially if you feed it good information, like what I'm showing you here, every Blackmagic keyer and memo and everything and OBS and everything else will pull a good key. If you do, if you understand the screen, all of these will pull good green screens. Um, next question. Eduardo Augustine in Panama City. Panama, uh, which tool can help to get started viewing scopes for green screen? I would recommend Nobe Omniscope and you can buy it. You can get a demo of it for 14 days. That's what I was showing you earlier. You can get a demo of it for 14 days. Uh, you can, um, and this is the, let's see if I can pull this over. Um, I was showing it a little bit earlier. Let's see. Hold on. Um, so this is the scopes, but you can configure this any time, any way you want. So this this happens to be a histogram and um, the the RGB parade uh, that I have here, and that's that's kind of the format that I use when I'm looking at at green screens. And so so no omniscope is the one that I would I would use. It's very configurable, um, and uh, it is. Um, you know, it's three, I think a three, is there a subscription now? I can't remember what it is now. Anyway, but it is a, um, it's a great app and uh, you can get it for free. And here's the thing, if you're working on green screen, once you go into demo mode after the 14 days, it stays open five minutes at a time and you just have to re reopen it. So if you're not sure if you need it, if you're not doing it for clients, um, you can very much use Omniscope for a very long time without paying for it. <laughs> so, um, so you can get used to it. You will want to pay for it because you will, want it opened and you will want to show it to other people and it's a great app, but you can use it for years and do what you need to do with green screen. If all you're using it for is green screen, you can open it up, tune things. It'll stop every five minutes. You have to open it up again. Eventually that becomes something you don't want to do. But when you're getting started and you don't, you're not making a lot of money at it, it's totally usable the way, the way it comes out. Next question. James Brooks writes in from New York. What is the best way to keep spill off light colored or white hair? Distance. <laughs> the more you move the person away from the green screen, uh, the less uh, you know. Um, the, the less it's going to contaminate the edges. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Would it be possible, or would it make sense to uh, light the person, the foreground person, with a minus Y or a magenta, a little bit of a magenta light? Pull your pull your mat, and then once you have your alpha channel mat, and then color correct back in uh, away from. We the used magenta. to do that. We used to do that. We just found that pulling the person away looked better. <laughs> like pulling, getting the person further away from the green screen. When we're saying what is the best way to do it, uh, we, we found that pulling the person away. And then the other thing is having a really solid unspill operation. It's not despill, but unspill um, is going to be a desaturation of that, of that process. Uh, next question. Tlaloc, Miguel Lopez Waterman writing in this time from Omaha, Nebraska. If you were capturing images with a green screen and transporting the image via Zoom, where would you do the keying, locally or at your location? I'll do everything I can to do it locally. <laughs> like to do it where, where the person is. Uh, you want to try to key the uncompressed footage. As soon as you start compressing it, the first thing compression is doing is throwing away color. Because we notice, as, as Courtney had, had outlined earlier, what we notice is the black and white information. So it keeps all of that, but that doesn't help us with our key at all. So well, we want to keep, we want to have all that color data and we don't want to be thrown away in compression. You'd be surprised the key will look so much worse uh, when you, when you, after you've compressed it. Uh, and so it's why we try to use un, um, uncompressed footage as often as possible. So yeah, you, you want to key it at the far end if you can. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, as onset LED technology gets cheaper and more accessible, will we still be keying in the future? 
uh, we'll be keen for a long time. It's expensive <laughs> and it's cumbersome to put up that much green screen. If you ask me for most of the green screen I've done, I don't, again, I don't use green screen unless I have to. Like, unless it's something that is the, the, the right thing to do for that moment, I'll use a monitor, I'll use LEDs, I'll use a lot of other things. I, you know, I don't, because I, I know, even though I'm pretty good at it, I know how much work it is and I can see all the things that aren't working in it a lot of times. And so, so I won't do that unless I have to, but when I do it, it wouldn't have been better with an LED wall generally. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and remember, if you're going to use uh, in-camera compositing, you're going to have to have enough LED wall to cover your entire field of view. With green screen, you only have to have enough to cover the foreground stuff that's moving. You know, you can garbage mat everything else out, right. and that doesn't cost anything in post to garbage mat, but it costs a lot of money to extend that LED wall to the edges of your frame. Next question. Robert Linkrum writes in from Belmont Shore, California. Does backlighting the subject using an opposite, in this case, the opposite of green color gel, yield better keying results? Sometimes it can really slightly better keying results, but the edges now you are corrupted with that color. And so I've we used to do that again. We were talking we've talked about it a couple of times this hour, but we stopped doing that a long time ago. And once we once we got good at really precision keys and understood unspill operations, we stopped doing that. Next question. Steve Podmore writes in from London, despite what you say about LED with improving tech and expertise such as Tim and the team at uh, VU, can you see the benefits of LED over green screen for certain applications, TV studio, for example? Yeah, 100%. You know, like, like there's definitely a lot of advantages to the LED walls. The LED walls are finally getting caught up to where we were trying to, what, what we want to keep. The problem really is, has been when you get into LED walls, there's a whole new set of problems and that is until you spend a lot of money, Tim is, got, is much more efficient than the rest of us, but if you do off the shelf and you're not buying the components directly from China, uh, the cost of those that screen at a, at a, at a, um, at a very high density and like a very, uh, you know, one mil, 1.5 mil or less, you're gonna, it's really expensive to do that. And if you go bigger than that, then you end up with Marae. And, um, and so that's a problem. And it takes, as you go into these LEDs, it takes a lot of processing power to do that and a lot of power. So it takes a lot of computers to fill that screen at a high resolution. And it also takes the space that we're in has uh, 2000, I believe 2000 amps, three phase, and it's not big enough to put a volume in. It's not enough power. <laughs> 2000, amp, uh, 2000 amps, 6000 amps total amps, not volts, amps. Uh, it is not enough to run that whole screen. So it's a lot of power um, to, to do these things. Yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, and, it, and another thing to consider is if you've got a character that has a lot of reflective, uh, you know, things like sunglasses or shiny helmet or yeah. anything reflective in their in their wardrobe, uh, LED screen will help you with that, and it also will help if you're having a lot of interactive lighting, if there's yeah. explosions going mm -hmm. on, because then the LED wall can provide that interactive lighting, and you won't have to program it in to light your foreground in sync with what is supposed to be going on around that. Yeah, absolutely. It does, you know, for some visual effects folks, it plants it plants you like you can't make decisions later because with green screen, you, if you didn't figure it out already, a lot of times when we were working on episode one, there was a lot of things that weren't done when we shot the green screen. <laughs> like a lot of things weren't figured out. So those things were still in progress when we shot the green screen. So so that is a uh, another piece of that puzzle. Next question. Nikhil Cam Kolkar writes in from New Jersey, perhaps this was already discussed, but is it good to light the green screen with some of the quasar lights and switch the light to be a green hue that matches that of the screen color? Yes. Um, you just have to be very careful 
of making sure to flag that off, make sure it's far enough away from the subject and that it's flagged off so that none of that green touches your keyed subject. That's the most important part of that. Green on green is a great way to get a very, very detailed key, but you have to do it very, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and you have to be very careful of how you flag that and how you manage it. And you also want to be careful not to peak your green. So you, you'll be tempted to make your, when you do green on green to make it 90%, you'll actually overexpose the edges and you won't get as much detail. So when you do green on green, the exposure that you're looking for is about 70% across that green. Your red and blue will be at 10 or 15%. You'll have plenty of room to work. Um, next question. Sky Gleason writes in from Seattle, Washington. Any thoughts about Reflect Media's green screen? Yeah, Reflect Media is a, it's a gray screen. It's, it's these little micro balls that you have there. And basically it projects green. It's BBC created it. It projects green against the gray screen. And the, one of the advantages is you get no wrinkles. It really just all comes back to you. Um, the thing that you have to be careful of there is occlusion. So um, so the penumbra of your hands, if you, if you, if I, every time I walk up to a Reflect Media, you'll see me go like this around my, and I'll go like, th there's, there are things that I know it doesn't do well. <laughs> so, so occlusion is, is one of those things that it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't handle well. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and the thing to remember with a retroreflective screen is the light source has to be coincident with the center of the camera lens. Right. And usually they do that with a ring light so that equal lights are right around mm -hmm. the lens. The problem with that is if you've got anything reflective on the actor, like glasses or reflective yeah. costume, you're going to see that ring light. Uh, or you're going to have little holes in the person. So yeah. you got to watch out for that. Another thing that we had, we tested one, I had one for a long time, is that, you know, obviously if you, if you decide you want to do Interatron or use a teleprompter, it doesn't work. <laughs> so so, that, so it, it immediately, that's the end of that. So, so there's a lot of uh, places where it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It, when it works, it works really well. Um, and it's really easy for someone to set up without a lot of skill. The quality of the key is not incredible. Um, it's not as good as, you know, um, you know it's, it's got, a, because there's a, there is how close those little balls are to get together and they form basically little pixels that, that you, you can see if, you, if you're really doing a fine key. Uh, but as a turnkey, I'm going to throw it into a room. People are going to go into it. It works really well, you know. And so, um, I, you know, I think that the one button guys, one button studio uses them, and I think it's a perfect. That's a perfect application of of that of that need because you don't need all the precision lighting that we're talking about. Uh, next question. Craig McFarland writes in from Boston, Massachusetts. After initial lighting setup, what is the best sequence of techniques for tuning a green screen? The main thing is is to get it. You know, to get that green screen up, get it go, get it into a scopes, into your scopes, and be able to see that. You know, you're looking for that edge. You're looking for. Let's see if I can go back to um, this. Uh, let's see. So if you are, you're, you're going to open this up. You're going to look at this green screen. It may not have a person in it, but you have a green screen. And you're going to, this, what you're seeing here is, is this part here, right? And so what you, what you're going to want to do is you're looking at this and you're wanting that to be as, as flat as it can be, as well as, as thin as it can be. And you preferably want that green to sit right at the, um, so what you want is that green to sit right at about 70%, which is up here. So that's the, and you want it to be as thin as you can make it going all the way across it might lip down a little bit you might have a little bit bit of vignetting there but that's what you that's the goal is you get it there and then the red and the blue you know you're you're hoping that your red is going to be you know somewhere like where you see this one right now some a red down here and if you're doing green on green it'll be even lower and then you might have a blue you know here like this 
and so you're trying to make sure that you're you're gaining um, the separation that you want here, as well as the um, you know you want that separation there, and you want them all to be as flat as you possibly can. Uh, next question. Nikhil Chemical Car writes in: Are there any good tutorials or tips on using the Blackmagic Design Ultimat 12 HD real time keyer? How do you think differently when it's real time versus post processed? You just have to be much better at it. Your your landing pad is so much smaller. You have to be really, really good. If you want a great key out of the Ultimat, you have to be really good at what I'm just talking about this hour, which is how you mat that screen. Um, last question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, would Nob Omniscope be the WLM of the Videoscope world? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's good. And we're, we're hoping to... Uh, get Thomas on to talk about it a little bit. It's, he's the developer of it. It's great. It's a great app. So um, I, I, uh, I highly recommend it. I, again, whether you're using this or Scopebox or other things like that, you, uh, it is, you have to have scopes <laughs> to do this. You, you, you cannot light a green screen to the level of precision that I'm talking about uh, without, without scopes. All right. Well, that was a good hour. Was a little, I, was a little, I wasn't sure how that was going to go. <laughs> so a lot of good questions. Uh, great questions. Great discussion. Thank you to the panel. Uh, it was great having all, all of your input. Um, it was uh, really valuable. And uh, we can't do this without you, both first hour and second hour. Uh, thanks to the uh, producers for all the great questions, both in the first and second hour. I kept everything moving along. And, uh, and thank you to the incredible team on the back end that's making this happen every single day. Uh, a reminder that we are doing a... Um, we're going to be uh, doing, if you're interested in volunteering, either on this team, other teams, there's some teams that are related to, um, there's some teams that are, um, uh, that are have to happen during the show. There's other teams that are managing things. There's other teams that are connected to development. There's other teams that are man just, just doing research. There's all kinds of places that you can volunteer. And it's really a great way to meet everybody and become part of this community. So uh, if you're interested in that, we're doing an orientation this Saturday uh, after the, sh after the, uh, um, after our, our normal session. So stay tuned for that. Um, and we'd love to have you. I'll be there to talk to and answer your questions about it as well as all the other folks managing um, the, the volunteering. So, um, so we're really looking forward to having um, some of you join us uh, for that. You can come, if you've already been to the orientation, you can come again and ask more questions about volunteering. It's a great way to just learn more about it if you're trying to figure something out. But if you're new, uh, feel free to come and we'll start with that. So we'll start talking for the folks that might be interested to to join. Um, there's a link for you to to sign up for there um, in the emails that go out every morning. So check that out. Uh, we traveled 98,000 miles, almost made it to 1K today, uh, 159 uh, kilometers and 783 million bananas for scale. Thanks, Chris. Chris sent me these. I got a, I got a whole pile of them. Anyway, um, so thanks so much. We'll see you in after hours. Is that banana metric or imperial? This is the imperial banana. This is the official banana. It is eight inches long. It is. Except no substitutes. No, it's, it's, this is the, the banana. In fact, we may have to digitize it and, and, and make sure that we, we copy it into the, into the archive because we found out that we were actually using seven inch bananas before <laughs> we, we standardized on the eight inch banana. There are many like it, but this one is mine. We have hundreds of measurements that are off by millions of bananas. That, that's something that we have to talk Bananas are totally off on what, seven-eighths of a banana? Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right. Too much banana talk. <laughs> Shashibu, you started this. It's way too much crisp banana bananas. Talk.